Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. I knew he was German, and I didn't. Sam, Sam, Sam Shepard was he's married a, to Jessica Lang for a very long time. Ooh. He, uh, he's piece. also a Pulitzer Prize winning She's not dead. Uh, playwright. Uh, Sam Shepard's dead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica Lang is very much not dead. Thank She's God. Also, uh, in yeah, several actor. pictures of Sam Shepard, he's wearing a uh, bomber jacket that is extremely dope. So. Well, somebody no. didn't buy Harry. You can How do we say his name? Jacket. Tim I have Tenders. A pretty sweet bomber jacket, actually. Grim Grenders. Dim Denders. You can tell Dim how little uh, uh, Apple cares about uh, iTunes. Guys are going to make Just me go on a Bim Benders. Flynn Flenders. Jim Genders. That picture has not been. <laughs> this whole thing like smacks of Jim Genders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, there are Jim Genders. This was a fun time. I am Yenders. Are we actually recording? Yenders. That does work. That's that's fine. Oh, we are recording. As long as it's a consonant, it for sure works. Right. Invaders and Zenders. Wait, aren't we doing (laughs) a thing? I was trying to remember the name of the show. (laughs) Aren't we doing a thing where we see the time stamp just in case it's needed? Aaron with the shot. It bounced off the rim. Aaron's renders. really concerned about getting to this movie on time. No, I'm not. I want to make sure. Did Ben Hansen reach out to you, by the way, Jason? From over about there, that would be about Star, Wars? Star Wars? Yeah. Thanks you do? Very much. Yeah, I told him that I couldn't go, but you should be on uh, that. So, did you say you couldn't? You I haven't said to? anything yet, because <laughs> it's at 11 p.m. Yeah. I haven't seen. This is the first Star Wars scene I've seen in a year. I haven't watched The Last Jedi since. This guy is making twelve thousand dollars a month on Patreon for his podcast network, and they're like, "I don't know if I'll go to that." I mean, I said I was going to the movie. Don't climbers, you fucking weirdos! I don't mind being an idiot on a podcast, clearly, but I do mind. All we talk about is Star Wars. Jason, all that we talk true, about right. is Star Wars. That is true. We, we can, watched the entire talk. Kurosawa filmography, more or less, with Toshiro Mifune, and I don't think there was a single movie there that we didn't mention Star Wars. That's right. Jesus, Damn. is that true? That's no, probably we, true. We absolutely yeah, did not mention It was a Star joke. Wars. Come on. It was that, rev- that revelation is pretty <laughs> grim grinders. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, the literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies that we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can follow us at Trilove Podcast on Twitter. You can follow them at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason. You can follow me at Nintendoofus. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. My name is Cody. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can follow me at Shiitake Harry. And today we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast for today's episode. Please welcome Jenny Ackerson. Hi. First time, long time. Woo! They said it could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> they said it couldn't be done. And they're right. Look, she's walking out the door right now. You Deep could have cut. said that into the mic. What do you... No, what do you, you, what you, what you, you yelled at me last time I did that bit. Does everybody and, uh, get a song? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anytime that there's Usually a three-syllable word, though, <laughs> Cody yeah. will turn it into the Avengers theme. I can put I it really in I'll do a clean cut The later. climax of that bit was the Seven Samurai episode, and I was proven wrong <laughs> when it persisted. <laughs> it lived despite yep. you. I lived, Little bit. did you know. Anyways. Today we're going to be talking about Paris, Texas. 
Uh, basically, Death Stranding, the movie. Stop um, it. Thank you. Uh, Is that a video game? Directed by Vim Vendors. Ding. It was a 1982-4 oh. film. 1984. I have a summary all written up. After just, uh, do you want the math checks out, listeners at home? Sure, please yeah. give me your, your summary. Yeah, this is a oh, 1984 shit. film directed by uh, Vim Vendors. Uh, won the Palme d'Or at the uh, 1984 uh, Cannes Film Festival. Um, it was written by uh, playwright slash actor uh, slash known for a lot of other stuff, uh, Sam Shepard, uh, mainly starring uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, the film oh. follows the journey of uh, Travis Henderson. Uh, is a man who's been lost for four years and has kind of found... Um, wandering uh, the desert of West Texas, uh, he collapses at like a like a gas station at a small town, and is uh, eventually kind of helped and brought back to life. Not not literally, but he is brought to uh, by a local doctor who uh, calls a phone number found on him. Uh, he's unable unable to get any information out of him, but he does call a phone number that he has on him. Turns out to be his uh, brother Walt, who lives in Los Angeles. Uh, with his wife Anne, and this is it a turns vintage Grossman summary. <laughs> Go on, I'm sorry. The, I've spoken three sentences here. 2019, this was a great Is this too long, year. Jenny? Is this too long? It's kind of long. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm about to be done. Uh, it turns out that in the, the four years that Travis has been gone, uh, Walt and his wife Anne have kind of uh, adopted and kind of been taking care of Travis's son, Hunter. Um, and so Walt eventually travels to Texas to retrieve his brother, Travis, uh, and hope to kind of understand what happened in the preceding four years during Travis's disappearance. So this is literally the copied and pasted the direct plot of uh, 2019's Death Stranding. No, stop Directed that. By Hideo don't mention Kojima, that again. I don't Norman like Reedus. what you're doing here. Um, no, but this is a – it's it's called a bunch of things. It's kind of a Western. It's kind of a – you know, uh, uh, I've heard it called uh, Vim Vendor's uh, Love Letter to America and, like, Americana. Um, I don't know if that's a good starting point. Harry, you really love this movie, I guess. is That's how I became, like, really aware of it, other than yeah, it's I just Yeah, I kind of that, actually. I feel like my perception of it might have been sort of uh, the framing device through which you watch this movie. And you I feel, uh, feel kind of bad about that. Don't if that think too highly of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think too highly of y- you, I guess. The real, the real insult behind that is that I don't... Uh, trust you guys enough to have your own perceptions of the movie, so I apologize. I don't know why I had that, poor that anxiety. But you know what I mean? It's like when, when I know somebody's like really identifies with the movie, I sort of like view it through their eyes, so mm-hmm. to speak. And sometimes I regret that because I wonder like I wonder who I how I would have felt about this movie if I hadn't known that. Know yes. that I didn't think much of your opinion of this movie while watching Good. it. I okay. only thought of you because <laughs> A well not that I didn't think Ooh, much. The gloves are coming off. That I didn't have your opinion in mind because, A, you had just told me that you liked it and that you owned it. I assume that's a pretty high bar. Uh, but mostly because just like watching Harry Dean Stanton move through a space reminds me of you and you <laughs> moving through a space. Yeah, Aaron said that too. I don't get that. I mean, wait, 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 I, wait, 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 I kind of wait, like wait, wait, Harry Dean no, Stanton. No bits. Jenny, does this ring for you? Does this track? I think it's not wrong. <laughs> What does that not mean? I, I always thought Harry, uh, he moved in a way that, not like he was robotic, but like he was in a, a kind of trance. Everything was He's like overly state. naturalistic, like he was trying to fool us. Sure. Yeah, I think this, this I can relate up. to that. You have the same like hairstyle and like facial hair. That's like 80% of it. And the name probably and has the something name, to do with well, it. No, but like you look like Harry Dean Stanton, man. It's a, he's a, he's a nice looking dude. It's a compliment. He, the only thing they say about him in this movie is that he's, quote, kind of skinny, unquote. And I guess that's kind <laughs> of skinny. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. Yeah. All right. I, I accept that. Uh, viewers at home uh, note that I look like Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see me. You'll probably never see me. Uh, and that's... 
fine. We'll put a good side by side up for the the Twitter, right? We will. Yes, we will. Thank yeah. you. We will animate your Harry face. Harry Dean Stanton minus the mustache. Get a mustache. Uh yeah. This is one of this is one of my favorite movies. Um, it might be my favorite movie. It's probably not my favorite movie. Um, but it's right up there. How, how, close, is, how close is it to being perfect? Uh, interesting. That's an interesting question because this is an interesting movie. Um, in some ways, it's very 1984 um, in its d- depictions of uh, gender relationships. Um, and I think that there are some really trenchant critiques you could make of this movie from that perspective that might complicate my understanding of it as a perfect movie. Um, I like it a lot, but I think dismissing it or not dismissing it but um having a very complicated or negative relationship with it on those terms is something that i think is totally valid right so it's tough to say you know what i mean uh what was your experience with vim vendors before watching this movie uh no no experience no experience Uh, i watched this movie earlier this year for the first time and i didn't know it was one of harry's favorite movies but i was aware that he liked it Mm. baseline so um, I didn't watch the movie thinking that I was watching Harry. <laughs> I, that means <laughs> a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, was everybody else a uh, Vim first-timer? I had uh, my familiarity with him was actually a little bit more, uh, like, I was more aware of him. You can just say the movie um, you've seen. Vim Virgin. I, no, I sorry, I was trying to figure it out. It's okay. Vim Virgin. Is that the joke? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, please yeah, proceed. Uh, I had not seen any of his movies. I was familiar with him due to uh, a documentary that he had made called uh, Buena Vista uh, Social Club, which is also the name of an album, which is a, it's a Cuban um, uh, Cuban music album, kind of a Cuban jazz album. Actually, uh, it's a bunch of Cuban musicians, and it's a collaboration with Ry Cooter, who did the soundtrack for this film. Oh. Uh, so I was kind of familiar. There's a, a documentary and an album that's called the same name, uh, and that was kind of my point of context for this film, which... It's it's a completely different thing, but sure, yeah. First first Vim Vendors film, uh, Cody. Uh, when it comes to this director, this was actually the second movie I've seen from him. Henders. Uh, the first one was Wings of Desire, which uh, is great. Uh, I'll ask you what you saw then in the rest of in in, in Winds or Wings. Wings of Desire. Wings of, Wings of Desire. I'll ask you later uh, what you see from that movie that appeared in this one, or vice versa. So just think Stay on that. Stay tuned. For the next on that. Yeah. Yeah, ex- setting the up sea. a bit for later. Our podcast has never had this much structure. I'm very nervous. Uh, this was my first Vim Vendors movie. Um, I He's had, a Vim virgin. I'm going to make it stick. Uh, the only other film that I was uh, aware was made by Vim Vendors was uh, Vim Vendors and the American Frienders. Uh, I've been sitting on that one for like three minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which I bought on the Criterion sale and then have not watched yet. Uh, yeah, I bought the Road Trilogy on the Criterion like a year ago, and I haven't watched any of them yet. R.I.P. to all the Criterions I've loved before. Uh, the this isn't a, isn't actually part of the Road Trilogy. He did three East German road movies in the eighties. Uh, it's Kings of the Road, um, Wrong Move, and a third one a third one a third one that's not the name of the film 2 for 3 isn't bad the name. like <laughs> the that's, third that's one good. Top your I head, own you know? the blu-ray set so it's not particularly mm-hmm. good from that perspective i'm sorry vim uh, so this showing of the trilon was put on as part of the volunteer showings uh, i'm just going to read a little bit about the person who chose this film um uh, self-described in their uh, in their biography on the periscope blog uh greg hunter uh, uh is 
Wow, his last name is Travis's son's first name. It, uh, it shows up. Uh, box office volunteer since 2011. Hunter is an arts writer and a graphic novel editor based in Minneapolis. He is kind to animals, serious about breakfast, and a fan of any movie starring Toshiro Mifune or naturally Harry Dean Stanton. I think Harry chose this movie to play the Trilon <laughs> because that is literally... Uh, if I was a volunteer uh, and more giving of my free time, I would volunteer at the Trilon. And if I had been asked, I would have chosen this movie. So... Uh, kind of. This, this guy seems great. Uh, yeah, the piece that he wrote for um, for Trial and Paris Fair blog is called Vim Vendor's American Myth. Uh, there are some quotes from it that I'll pull from every now. I don't know how many people got to read it beforehand. I did. You did? Yeah, uh, yeah it's a pretty it's good look. Good. It's a pretty yeah. good look uh, at so, sort of why people might um, uh, turn this movie down, why people might not uh, respond to it po- very positively, and as well as why those why the movie ultimately subverts those concerns in, in uh, Greg's opinion anyway. Um, like I said, I had not seen any of Inventors before this. I will probably watch more because this was a very intriguing movie. Mid, I watched it in a weird way. I watched an hour of it on like Wednesday. Yeah, hour of it on Wednesday. Paused. Went to go get food with Harry and Aaron. Uh, came back home. It was too late to watch the rest. Next day, I went to see Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and then Oof. got home and watched the rest of Paris, Texas, which is it was a really uncomfortable way to watch the movie. But That's the ideal viewing experience, actually. So well, I, I kind of have a question about that. The movie changes so much, like, on the way through. So watching just the first hour, you probably thought it was a completely different movie. I, I definitely noticed a difference. Um, the first half, of course, is rather slow, um, rather, like, very baking the characters as they go on. Uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of plot, I guess. Not not The story doesn't move very far in the first hour or so. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Um, and I pause right at the point where uh, Hunter and um, and Travis are taking off to go to I forget what part of Texas they go to to find Jane. To Houston, find, yeah. They, when they go to Houston, it's like right as they're getting on the road. I paused it, uh, and from there it does like turn into something almost completely different. That is literally like a halfway point in like the narrative too, right? Like the the first half is Travis returning home, and then yeah, it's uh, got a really interesting structure, yeah. but um, like. I think, not to cut you off, the first half, I think, left enough of an impression on me that having uh, broken it up into two pieces wasn't, like, super negative, didn't impact my viewing experience super negatively because, uh, like, normally I would assume that 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 contrast, that that change is more stark while you're watching it, uh, where it starts to shift and sort of the story becomes what it becomes. Um, but again, because like it had left such an impression on me for the first uh, in the first half, and I had it was one of those movies that I like I didn't pick up my phone to, during watching at all. I'd have this terrible habit of picking up my phone while I'm watching a movie, and just sometimes sort even of when you're in a movie theater, zone, I check the time when I don't have my watch on. God damn it! How many times do I need to explain? You this? know how long the movie is. And the I just, I'm curious playing. if you I can have, do the if math. I, my mind will not be satisfied if I do not immediately check what time it is. I can't be the only person who checks his time at the fucking theater. <laughs> do you have Do you have one of the watches? I have, you have some one of like the modicum of watches? control over you. Do you have, I, I, do you have one of these? You press the button in and like I goes do. Neon? Well, I don't have that yeah. nice a watch. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Jenny, you characterized the, that there's this sort of three act structure to this movie uh, pretty well earlier today. Um, <coughs> do you remember that structure and care um, to sure. share it? I mean. So part of the structure was laid out in Aaron's long synopsis. His <laughs> <laughs> beat for it beat. I'm glad that every guest we have jumps on the same things that I've been harassed by the rest of these motherfuckers <laughs> with for the for the past a fine year. Summary, we've been recording. There's exactly one common denominator here. <laughs> <laughs> so you might think it's a maybe a movie about uh, a guy coming back into society, and you slowly 
find out the reasons why he left. And then maybe you realize in the second act it's a story about him reconnecting with his child and really becoming a human again. Um, and then the third act, then you realize, like, oh, it's his interpretation of, like, what people's family should be, what fantasy is, um, what what reality is, and his place in it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in between those acts that you start to feel there's, like, a weird gray space between acts for me in this movie where I almost thought it was going to go to a different place. Um, specifically between the second and third acts, I thought it was going to become sort of like a weird tale of his obsession with his wife, with his mm-hmm. ex-wife, I guess, uh, and how it was going, might have gone to a much darker place than it ended up going to. Um, oh, it nearly did. <laughs> it, it, like, it very nearly does, right? It's uh, it's not a super comfortable movie to watch, especially after that second half, because you're not exactly sure. You don't really have a great idea of who this person is outside of uh, other people's, like, recounted memories through um, video. A pretty common... Uh sort of tagline people throw at this movie both positively and pejoratively is that it's a monster movie told from the monster's perspective. Whoa. Uh, and Travis is the monster, and that's, like, almost accurate, right? Uh, especially if you consider how Jane must have felt about this whole thing. About the first time that she realizes who's on the other side of that Yeah, well, and, and the idea that, that he materializes back out of the fucking uh, American Southwest landscape in pursuit of her, like the Terminator. Uh, yeah, I, if this is um, maybe touching back on Harry, what you were alluding to with like um, like portrayed gender dynamics uh, or politics, that's maybe the one thing that I'm still kind of wrestling about with this movie for negative reasons. Is um, I guess I don't know what came first, like the detail, like this particular detail, or like Harry Dean Stanton getting cast. Uh, but the fact that he was cast and he was great for this role, um, and then the fact that um, oh boy, uh, n- anybody know how to pronounce Jane's? <laughs> Natasha. N- Natasha. It is just Natasha. Let's just do Natasha. Natasha Kinski. Um, she was. Uh, she blew me away. Um, there is a glaring age difference between these two people, and that is commented on in the movie. Again, I don't know if that came before or after the casting of Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton also expressed discomfort with the age difference. Okay. I got to, you know, yeah, defend no, the boy. Th- no, that is, yeah, I, that is, yeah, I mean, that is obviously important. Um, but yeah, like the fact that this is, like, I I like that take, that it's a monster movie from the monster's perspective. Um, and then Travis eventually describes in very uh, alarming detail the things that took place uh, and the fact that the, the things he did came from a person in his type of power, specifically as a man who is that much older than this very young woman. They even comment how young she is uh, at the time when all of this kind of began. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if other people have feelings on that, but I feel like that's like that's pretty important, right? I feel like, and I haven't maybe given it the thought it deserves, but I feel like it contextualizes uh, both their history and sort of their present and what it ends up be what uh, what they end up doing, how the situation resolves, or rather doesn't in many ways. Um, I want to frame our discussion or to an extent with uh, more writing from Greg Hunter because I found that this point got me thinking about it a little a little more than I had before. Um, uh, Greg writes that Wenders, Stanton, and screenwriters Sam Shepard and L.M. Kit Carson are certainly aware of the wrongness in Travis's past. It's the context for everything we see. Paris, Texas implies that to the extent Travis can uh, exist apart from his past, he can only do so after he fully accounts for that wrongness. Notably, the film focuses on tracking this shift rather than contriving a display of forgiveness from Kinski. People can change Paris, Texas. People can change, Paris, Texas says, 
But that change isn't easy, automatic, or in Travis's case, the responsibility of anyone other than himself. Does that does that hold? Like for me, that makes sense because uh, his wife Jane does not forgive him for anything. She doesn't like ever come into actual like direct contact with him. Hardly ever sees his face except through glass. Yeah, um, I won't. I don't want to speak about this too much uh, because I don't want to talk too much. But um, I think that that integral to my reading of this movie um, is that I think it's even less optimistic than uh, Greg. Um, characterized it as um, that's that's a really um, apt characterization of I think what what the ultimate character arc for Travis is in this movie um, with the exception that I'm not sure this movie does think people can change I don't even think that Travis is necessarily changed by the end of this movie I think that that what's key about his journey is that he realizes that he hasn't changed and he realizes that that he has to separate himself as a result of that change, a consequence of that change. This this movie, it, it has a, in my opinion, really realistic, really um, heartbreaking but, but true-to-life um, accounting of what that change can be and what it enables you to, to be. Um, I mean, I guess spoilers for this movie, right? Like, uh, the, the two... The aggrieved um, woman and man don't get together at the end of this movie, right? And that's integral. That's, like, extremely important. Mm -hmm. And Travis doesn't... He doesn't uh, free himself of his demons or or banish those demons um, in any true sense. In fact, he doesn't even really banish himself of his um, contempt for... uh, Womanhood, particularly of Jane, and where that st- and the self-loathing that that stems from, um, so much as he tries to negate it, um, and that to me is is what's really fascinating about this movie is that it takes the the sort of American myth of um, projection of the self or self-definition, and it becomes about a myth of American negation. And the idea of negating oneself as the highest aspiration, there's sort of like the idea that that we have the ability or hopefully we have the ability not to affect positive change, but at least to undo the terrors that we've wrought um, as the highest possible aspiration that somebody like Travis could have. That is heartbreaking to me, and it also feels true. (laughs) And that's maybe why I relate to this movie so much. But anyway... um, all that is to say, I think that's a good characterization. Um, but uh, maybe this this movie, um, to its great credit, is even more subversive than that. That's all I'm going to say about that. Sorry. Do you think you have to negate oneself to perpetuate a continued delusion? Is that also part of what you're getting at? Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really interested in um, in your letterboxed review. Uh, Jenny's on Letterboxd. Follow Jenny on Letterboxd. Do you remember your ad on Letterboxd? Uh, no. I think it's Akerson Jenny. I, know it. right. I just wanted it. <laughs> uh, you said that, that Paris, Texas is a place where you separate uh, dreams and reality. Is that sort of what you're getting at with that question? Maybe. I mean, um, I feel like when this monster's recounting his past or his interpretation of it, he does fully recognize how he was obsessed in totality and how he transformed but he never talks about how he transformed back from that so yeah he does maybe accept that he's I don't know not grown (laughs) 
he's grown enough to realize that he tore apart his family's world. I think his arc in this is about realizing that he can't change, right? I think mm-hmm. that maybe at the beginning of this movie, there's there's a sort of um, much more classical or implied to be classical plot that we start to see form where Travis is going to write what once went wrong and as a reward, um, like uh, sort of resume the American dream nuclear family that he dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what this movie ends up being. Yeah. I think a good place to talk about where Travis goes and how what he realizes or doesn't realize in this movie is to talk about like where he comes from. The very beginning of the movie, like we said, is a, a cold open on Harry Dean Stanton walking through the Texan, uh, like uh, dry Texan landscape. Um, completely alone, no explanation for why he's there, not uttering a word. Uh, and uh, only once he meets his brother, um, actually hours and hours after he meets his brother, he finally starts to talk and open up. Um, to me, it, by the end of the movie, I, you don't, I don't really notice this until the end of the movie had already come around, but uh, his if he has a journey, it's only started because we sort of, and I don't say this negatively, but artificially brought him down to zero from, like, we don't know. It's never explained, again, yeah. spoilers, it's, why he's uh, It's very nearly magical along. realist, right? Like, yeah. there, you could easily see a 30 seconds before this movie, Travis materializing out into the desert like Dr. Right. Manhattan in Watchmen, right? Like, you could you could see him coming. And, like, that's, that's reflected in his mental emotional state mm-hmm. where, like, he's mute and he's amnesiac at the right. beginning of this movie. And that, um, it's because to me that the movie obviously wouldn't work if we a knew who he was before the start of the movie or what he had done because we would have no reason to empathize or sympathize with the character whatsoever so the only way that we can perceive him is to watch him growing from a literal uh, uh speechless dry husk of a man crawling through the desert um and watching him grow to what he what he ends up being which is just sort of like a bad person who realizes he's bad uh rather than uh like realizes why or tries to make it's tries it's to complicated, be better right like i don't know if i'm willing to to characterize him as bad i wouldn't I think he's just broken yeah he the beginning maybe i'm just reading into too many of the i don't know things that i read about this movie characterizing it as a western but it seems like his character at the beginning of this movie is meant to fulfill a specific archetype Hell of yeah. the you know the dessert like the the wandering man uh, crossing a desert, right? He's literally no a man past. with no name, right? Right, and of course he has a past and he has a family that he's not with anymore. Um, you know, I was thinking like Dark Tower, I guess, which is like the nerdiest Western shit to point to for this kind of thing. But like, that's what he's kind of fulfilling at the beginning, right? And you get the idea that part of what uh, Vendors is doing by deconstructing um, that romantic notion is also deconstructing that archetype of a character, Um I don't know. I mean, he described this as a love letter to America, but you, you kind of get the feeling maybe it's a little, little not hateful, but I don't well, know. The best what's the kind word? of love letters are deeply critical. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? You look like you were agreeing I, with that. Oh yeah. Okay. I, that's a, that's a really great uh, point. I, I think that this this movie is like an anti-western in the truest terms. In that, I think it's like maybe the the most. Um, and, and this is maybe not something that's fully supported by the film because this is the sort of thing, like you said, that I maybe don't totally feel while watching it just because this movie is so of a piece on its own. But um, it, it, it takes the, the sort of archetype, the elemental archetype of that man without a name, the wanderer in the West, who is all about 
the um, projection. It, it, there's sort of a, a frustrating colonialist manifest destiny metaphor attached to that man without a name in that it's about confronting a landscape that is alien and bending it to your will, right? Like, that's what cowboys are all about, is, like, the settling of the West, the reconstitution of the West, the the projection of the self onto the West in order to uh, tame it. Uh, this movie is, is all about deconstructing that and instead demonstrating how a sort of implied West in all, capital W, West, and all that that stands for, instead is reflected upon the people, or at least... Mm-hmm how they feel it reflects upon them and, and how that gets them to feel. I mean, you can you can feel the dominance and um, oppression of the landscape on the people in this movie, right? They're dwarfed by their landscapes. In every shot of this, this beautiful movie, which, you know, um, especially in the first act, it's some of the most beautiful cinematography I've ever seen. And it's... it's um, it's where art meets form in the sense that uh, you, you get that these... Um, uh, these these images are are deeply earned by the themes of the movie because it's about how living in a place like this and in a myth like this and all that that implies how that weighs on a human being and gets them to feel a certain way about who they are and where they are um and that's visited upon the generations um because you know uh ultimately what happens is it's impl- or it's it's demonstrated that although Travis would ostensibly be brought back to zero he's not at all and it's because of the landscape around him it's because of the past it's because it's not so easy to escape those things yeah um and so i sorry i that no, was a lot, but uh that was a um a really stunning reversal to me um where so many westerns are about what you're doing to the landscape. So few of them are about what the landscape does to you, it feels like, sure. ultimately. Um, the landscape is only ever an adversary to be overcome, whereas in this it's about what overcoming it does <laughs> uh-huh. in an interesting way. Uh, Jenny, you said not bad, just maybe broken. Uh, Travis as a character, it, does that tie into what Harry was saying for you about how the the landscape, how your environs will shape you? Uh, I kind of thought of it like he wanted to disappear into the landscape, Mm -hmm. like he didn't want to exist in any such meaningful way. Um, So this kind of, I I took took some notes. I took some (laughs) noties. noties. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey. (laughs) When uh, when he's at the gas station and he's um, looking in that fridge and he sees all the dosakis but doesn't grab one, and then he looks for ice chips. There's a whiteboard with um, a little phrase written on it, if you all remember it, but I wrote it down. It says, the dust has come to stay. You may stay or pass on through or whatever. And I kind of think that's just really, um, I don't know. It, it felt very appropriate to how Travis views himself in the world, right? He's mm-hmm. just, the damage is done. He doesn't really need to exist in, around it, I guess. He's not the cowboy, he's the tumbleweed sort that, of thing. That idea that, that Travis is trying to remove himself is especially supported in um, Act 1 where he tries so uh, ardently to avoid being mixed up with people again, right? Where his his brother repeatedly tries to bring him back to the land of the living and Travis just straight up av- tries to avoid him or run, runs away yeah. from him to the point where um, Dean Stockwell's character, Travis's brother, uh, Walt, um... It gets really frustrated about it. 
Yeah, you could even say that's where Travis's quest starts in this movie, because up to that point, he had successfully, uh, like, evade, like, shed himself of his identity. Um, and through, like, the re-engagement with his brother and getting, you know, more deeply brought back uh, with um, his, uh, his sister-in-law and his son, um, we begin to see more character- characteristics materialize. And, you know, you can maybe say the second half of this movie is about him. Um, going back to going back to zero, I've lost track of what zero meant in this case. Well, uh, but j- further shedding himself of this identity, creating that separation between the things that really like comprised himself in a previous life. I yeah. think that's why he keeps the picture on him, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. it's a picture of a, an empty plot. Um, there's a line in there I can't remember when he says it, uh, but there's a line where he says that he wants to travel uh, to somewhere without language, without roads, without, I believe he without says. streets or without language or streets. Yeah. Which also, it turns out he's talking about Mexico, which is like one kind of a problematic thing to throw into this. <laughs> sure. But also um, kind of interesting from a character perspective in that, like, and and also like the idea that like. Bro, there are no places without streets or right. language. Like, right. that doesn't exist. But he also knows how to speak some Spanish. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which also, uh, Harry Dean Stanton singing in Spanish is a through line throughout his career, which is interesting. Throughout his career? Yeah. Where else? Uh, in his last uh, movie, Lucky, he sings a full song in Spanish. Oh, it's wow. beautiful. Uh, you should see Lucky. It's good. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. Um, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, yeah, yeah 2017. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. There, there are streets all over the place in this movie. Wherever Travis goes, uh, he's walking down that railroad track in the desert. Uh, when he gets back to does civilization, does a railroad track count as a street? Yeah, yes, it's a path. You know, right yeah. It's well, he <laughs> does kind of just power walk diagonally as well, <laughs> right? So. And uh, he also does just cut across. And when he's watching that, fields. when he's watching that Super Eight, he takes a trip down memory lane. Ooh. I want to talk about Ooh. it. Yeah. Now, now uh, I reject the last sentence you made. It didn't happen. That's but, okay. I um, uh, reject it. The whole concept of like wherever he goes, there are streets, and how he. I mean, like when you say coming that, soon to the trial. When you say shot. that, it makes me think of one of the notes I took during the movie, which is that the way that this film is shot, the way that this film is staged specifically against the environment, uh, and it's not—I'm not the first one to notice it—but it starts very bare and it starts empty. It starts completely, more or less lifeless, except for him. Uh, and slowly, as we, um, as we, as the character regains, I guess, self yeah. uh, and identity it starts to urbanize around him like more and more he like uh he meets a person and then he meets another person and we start to see him opening up and then he uh, is on a uh, he's in a rental car and he's heading toward the city and then the, eventually he makes his way to Houston the physical terrain coincides with the sort of mental emotional journey that the character goes on right perfectly parallel and it's like it's not bringing him from zero to a fully actualized human uh, it's bringing him from zero to, like, the one realization he needed to make in, in life. Yeah, well, I mean, he spent, you know, he spent years basically running away from uh, what he had done. I think he begins to realize that simply starting over does not actually fix any of the problems. It does not actually help any of the people that you've wronged in the past, right? Um, so the idea of, like, just starting over, starting clean, I think it kind of ties in, I think... Uh, uh, Greg Hunter, I believe, mentioned this in the article that he wrote for uh, Parisphere, but he mentions that um, the American dream is is kind of about starting over, right? Like, it's about having a place that enables you to um, begin anew and kind of succeed 
uh, greater than you ever could have before. And I think that for him, he's unable to do that until he actually wrestles with his past. So um, we should talk about how this is a, a theme that Sam Shepard, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning um, playwright who wrote this movie, returns to throughout his career. The, um, the, I believe the play that he won the Pulitzer for is called Buried Child. And it's it's about an, and it's, I guess spoilers. It's the title of the movie. It's it's about an American homestead that uh, buries a, a um, st- I be- either stillborn or died slightly after birth uh, baby beneath their home, and and how the like psychic trauma of that baby existing there like is revisited upon the the people who inhabit that that space. Um, this is a, a, also a movie about psychic generational. Uh, not almost uh, ideological trauma, um, or at least aspirational <laughs> trauma in a in a in a weird way. Um, it's it's about it's about how the um, the rigors of attempting to form a, f- a family life or uh, to assume a role can can harm the the people right I, in it. I I think that that so much of of Travis's. Um, Travis's personality flaw results from um, the idea that he doesn't think that he's um, good enough to do what what he needs to do, or he fears that he's not, and that fear turns into a self-loathing that turns into a resentment of the people around him, especially the people who love him, that turns into rage, that turns into violence. Mm-hmm. Do um, you think then, after the events of this movie, that based on what Aaron was saying about achieving the American dream, starting over. Do you think that he would do that then in a hypothetical like extension of this film? Does he go on to achieve? I, I assume he would eventually went to Paris, Texas, right? I don't know. Maybe, you know. He's got his own plot of land there now. Uh, I mean, he had a plot of land. I don't know. I would imagine it's more built up than that, right? Like, I assume he gets there and it probably looks nothing. I don't know if people built anything on it, but I assume it's it's not what he's imagining, right? Um, I think, I, Jenny, I think you had mentioned, you used the word, like, I think you had said something about, like, the tearing down of a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that is how I view this movie mm-hmm. very much. Like, I view, view this movie as a, as a person um, tearing down or, or attempting, or eventually, at the end of the movie, tearing down um, uh, a fantasy that he had built up, not only about himself kind of recognizing his past, but also tearing down a fantasy uh, of his, his, I guess, ex-wife at this point. Um, you know, I think the and the, and the, the, broad, scene, the broader but, implications of what that tearing down could mean about yeah. the the fantasy of all of it, right? Yeah. Um, and what it means also when you kind of build someone up um, unrealistically. Uh, I, I, I yeah, I don't know when's the point to talk about that final scene. We can get into it if you want. Um, I think I think just the way it's framed, uh, you know, it's a it's a. Um, What's the term? It's like a peep show house, I guess I would say it is. Uh, just the shot of the window looking into this view of like this classic American lifestyle, right? Is so perfect. It's like, it's like maybe one of the best single scenes in any movie ever. Uh, when, when the camera perspective changes and it, the camera is now inside the room that she is in and uh, you look out and you see around the window that he is looking through in his perfect life there is insulation and pipes uh, and it plastic. Only, it also only switches so to good. His perspect- her perspective once the first time that he goes to the peep show and yeah. it's when he's at his most violent and his most angry with her. Yep. It's when he's, he's accusing her of essentially being a prostitute. Uh, that's when we see it through her eyes. It's fucking brilliant. It, yep. Man, that's a good part. <laughs> 
Um, I just want to bring that up at some point. That yeah, was my favorite. We'll, we'll definitely movie, talk yeah. about that. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in uh, the, the tearing down of a dream that, that you saw in this, Jenny. What did you think the dream was? And what did you think the um, the separation or the tearing down meant? Uh, I feel like Travis kind of enacted it by um, he was obviously outraged at the the parting of his wife and family, um, which we can talk about the specifics of that storytelling later. But um, he was outraged, so he's running for days. And then I feel like he just wanted to completely reset himself and get lost. And then where we pick up with him in the story four years later, he now is like learning how to be a human and kind of goes through stages of infancy and being a young boy and just getting his basic needs met um, before he can finally recollect his memory for why he left in the first place or where his mind led him on this dangerous fantasy-based path in the first place. Yeah, I think there's a lot said that kind of feeds into that, or a lot that's unsaid in the film, but is is it seems to like way over the events of the film about like how the people around you, maybe specifically your parents, like feed into how you view other people, uh, maybe specifically people of, of the opposite sex. Inextricably, right? As yeah. this movie sort of contends. I mean, I think that this this movie um, ha- has a very um, strict view about that and, yeah. and about the idea that, that it's sort of unchangeable, yeah. like that, that the, the sort of firmament of who you are is is inextricable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so just in case anybody's not seen the film and they're watch- listening to this like like a weirdo, uh, his, his father, uh, who was uh, from the little bit that you hear about Travis's father, it sounds like he maybe wasn't a great guy. Uh, he had a wife that uh, he had met in Paris, Texas. That's supposedly where Travis was conceived. Um, and he, uh, Travis says that the joke was that he used to say, oh, I met a woman in Paris. And then he would wait a little bit and he'd say, Texas. And it's like this zinger. And it's supposedly over time he just kind of started to build her up as this kind of mythical figure that, like, oh, I did meet her in Paris. She really or is this he kind had of a person. an entitlement about who yes. he was, that he deserved to be with somebody from Paris, right? Yeah. That's what he said uh, in one of the pivotal scenes. Travis says that he had an idea about her that grew into a kind of sickness, and that joke stopped being a joke. It yeah. started being something that he was f- f- angry about. Yeah. He, he wanted her to be something other than she was. Yeah. Because that would mean that he was something other than he was. I, I think it is very interesting that Walt, uh, Walt's wife, Anne, is specifically French, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that when he, you know, obviously he had this probably a little bit earlier in his life, but when he returns to Los Angeles and starts, uh, you know, kind of meeting with Hunter, his son again, I think it is it is kind of a big point the movie is making that he is seeing this, I don't know, kind of his ideal uh, situation uh, with his brother, and uh, you know his wife uh, yeah. in front of him. There's a really interesting, um, maybe subtle, maybe too subtle, um, like racial and nationality um, interplay here. Uh, Travis and um, Walt's mother is also half um, she Latinx. Her her mother was from Mexico, um, and that is implied to be, in my opinion, it plays into. Um, Travis's father's sort of resentment of her in a, in a really um, despicable way, right? I mean, like, obviously, it's despicable either way. Um, also, I mean, the movie's called Paris, Texas. There's a French yeah. wife. Um, Vim Vendors is a German filmmaker. There's a really interesting interplay about outsiders viewing America uh, here mm-hmm. and, and the sort of insight that that might give them. 
Yeah, I, it is also. Sorry, Jenny. I don't know if you're uh, approaching the mic there, but I think it, there's a very uh, uh, kind of telling scene where Walt and Anne are talking, and they're actually talking about uh, the fact that they they are afraid that Travis kind of returning to the picture will kind of tear Hunter away from them because Hunter, it is strongly implied, has been kind of the one thing maybe holding their marriage together, maybe, um, and that, that or they've constructed a, a fantasy not. Sure totally unlike the fantasy that yeah. uh, Travis constructed where Hunter became their child and allow- seeing him as their child, seeing themselves as mother and father gave them an understanding of who they were and their place in the world that they're now desperately afraid yeah, to it, lose. And it's a, it's a brief scene, but it Vendors gives you like the other side of the coin very briefly. It's also one of my favorite things that this movie does is not shy away from how badly Travis hurts even those people. Um... What is Walt's wife's name? Anne. Uh, Anne. Yep. Uh, like, Anne is tortured in this movie uh, in a way that is, like, really deeply heartbreaking, but pointedly so. Um, that scene when after Travis has taken um, Hunter, where she uh, takes the phone from Walt to talk to Hunter, is so well acted uh, and so brutal, where she's asking Hunter where he is, and she's so afraid to lose him. And we've seen her... Um, we, we've seen her anxiety. She's up at 2 in the morning talking to Walt about how losing Hunter is, is something she can't deal with. Um, and then she, we get to see that nightmare happen to her, and it's because of uh, Travis. I mean, Travis broke apart another family. Right, exactly. He's doing Yikes. the exact same thing that he did before because that's who he is and what he, he does. kidnapped a yeah. child yeah. in this movie. <laughs> it, I, I thought, for, like, when the movie was kind of nearing the end, I thought, like, is there going to be a plot point here where, like, the police are called? Like, the movie, like, thankfully does not, like, resort to any of that. But, like, you think for a moment, like, there's so many just, like, heart-wrenching places this could go and then it does it goes to one of them um but yeah that and like i don't know what it is about this movie it's like it's a very tense watch like the scenes with with hunter and uh travis at the bank trying to like do on like a like a stakeout uh to find um to find uh travis's wife is like I don't know why. I kept thinking, like, is Hunter going to get, like, hit by a car or something during this scene? There, like, I kept thinking such, that kind of shit. There's such a great alienating anxiety running through this movie because of scenes like that that ostensibly are set up in this this almost, um, like, not romantic comedy, but... Kind of but, playful. Even. Yeah, th- yeah, this, like, very much so playful, like, uh, Robert Zemeckis type, <laughs> Steven Spielberg yeah. type, like, magic and wonder of being alive movie but with this realist edge to them that really alters the way that you're perceiving them in, in a way that you know uh, subsequently in the sort of T.S. Eliot uh, tr- tradition in the in- individual talent sense it retroactively alters the way that you saw previous scenes which is of course the point of deconstructed media right is that like now after we see the story of Travis and Hunter we can't see all of those other stories of a deadbeat dad coming to sort of like reevaluate what's important in his life the same way ever again because of yeah, Travis. You can't watch the Hallmark Channel after you, seeing this. Right. Just, it's, it's tough, it's man. Hard like, one. You can't, not the same way. Um, go ahead, Jenny, sorry. So, just to back up a few steps, I, I did ha- always wonder in this movie, why does Walt not have the same recollection of his parents as Travis does? Is he considerably younger or does he just like, because Travis is telling the story about, or he's like struggling to tell this joke about <laughs> his dad pretending his mom's from Paris and all this, and then the ensuing mental illness that develops, presumably. But Walt just doesn't have that much of a reaction, and it doesn't seem to 
have shaken him in any of the same way or informed his identity. I think it must have to do with age. I mean, just visually, uh, Dean Stockwell is not as old as Harry Dean Stanton. I don't think that they ever talk about each other's respective ages uh, in the fiction of this movie. Um, that's how I read it. Uh, it seems like a s- bit of a simple hand-waving, but mm-hmm. I think there is, like, I'm not exactly sure why, but I think it is using that to there, an effect. There's a class politic there, too, right? Um, <laughs> I'm borrowing uh, Parasite. But uh, money is an iron, right? You like, like Parasite? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> fond of Parasite. Um, I'll say again, Parasite, Texas. <sighs> Go ahead. Oh, that's good. You know what? I like that bon one. Bong Joon-ho Paris, remake yeah. Paris, Texas. <laughs> uh, um, I would star. R.I.P. Harry Dean Stanton. I thought yeah, that guy R. was R. dead. Uh, Dean Stockwell's character, uh, Walt Henderson, is wealthy. Or not necessarily. Well, he's, he's wealthy. He's, yeah, he's, he's got that billboard money. He's a business he's owner. He's quote-unquote middle class. No, there is no middle class. It's working. Quote-unquote, again, <laughs> it's, it's used <laughs> to flatten the conversation. Uh, he but lives like, up on a hill. He's he got does. money. Yeah. He does. He lives up there. He says that he takes. A, uh, he took a beating on the financing of the house. But His he seems to be, can walk to school he in to be L.A. Com- he, he seems to be comfortable. Travis right? Travis shows up and he says, hey, I need to borrow some money. He's like, yeah, just borrow all the money you need. Take some credit cards. Yeah, what kind of fucking psycho would do that? It's a really good, really weird weirdly true to life um depiction of siblings where like i can understand where dean stockwell walt henderson's like um tremendous sympathy for and patience for travis comes from because it makes him feel really fucking good about himself and i really love that you can see that where it where it's like oh yeah like i have to take care of my like my fuck up brother and like because the fact that he takes care of his fuck up brother makes him feel like he really has a handle on shit uh, mm-hmm. I really just love that dynamic I, I think tying yeah and even tying the character of Walt into uh, what you were saying before about this this kind of seeming like a Walt seems like a character out of like planes trains and automobiles or like like <laughs> one of those like <laughs> which is partially casting, from right? decades past yeah it's he, lo- he looks like a fucking who from every line Whoville. in this movie that he says that's like slightly comedic is just like i've just been taking care of you for so long gosh gosh darn it can't you help me out here it's like ridiculous uh he's a midwesterner kind of on the west coast no, yeah that accent yeah. was a bad one i just did he doesn't sound like that but no you know. i mean like his, his sensibilities uh I'm interested in discovering or exploring. Sorry, did I? Oh no, that's right. you were approaching the mic. Sorry, approaching I can't, the mic. I can't make eye approaching contact. The mic, that's bro. the problem. Yeah, these mics are up kind of high. <laughs> <laughs> um, the class politic that we were uh, getting at is like, is that foregrounded? And like, does that explain any of what Jenny was uh, questioning to you, Harry? You brought it up, so I think, I think in part um, there's a weird sense. Ooh, okay, we're what, 50 minutes in? This is where the, the capitalism comes in. We <laughs> talked a little bit about the middle class thing. The capitalism. Uh, but um, there's, there's a sense in America that your success is what bears out your the validity of your understanding of yourself of your and upbringing. your realities. So I think that there's a sense in which um, Walt, through his success, is able to derive a stable sense of self-identity that isn't reliant on uh, or at least can cover right. for the um, problems that he's been having in a way that Travis can't because he doesn't have access to that capital. Uh, success covers a multitude of failures, I think. It's like a Mark... Is that Mark Twain? I can't remember. But um, there's there's this sense in which um, if, if uh, Dean Stockwell's character, Walt, has 
I don't know why I keep saying Dean Stockwell's character Walt. I think it's like <laughs> a new device. The character, man. Uh, but um, Dean Stockwell's character Walt, like comma Walt, is like the name of like a extremely pretentious like one man play or something. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> uh, starring Dean Stockwell. Are you going to see Dean Stockwell's uh, character Walt? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, there, there's a sense in which if those things exist, they don't have to define him because he has the ability or literally the resources to define himself another way. Um, mm-hmm. You approaching the mic? Yes, because I want to talk about Go. something I wrote in all caps in my notes. Hell yeah, caps, Jenny's notes. Good. Rich daddy outfit. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and it's literally too big for him. It, he literally can't fill the shoes. You know, he was looking pretty good at that. He could be my I, rich daddy. Uh, you know, that outfit. Harry Dean Stanton always wears suits, and they're always too big for him. And he always looks fucking great. Yeah, he's Again, like the only person. He, he should look like Nathan Fielder, you know what I mean? But he, he, <laughs> he walks around like just looking pretty good in that outfit. Uh, he gets help from uh, the uh, caretaker of the house to put together an outfit mm-hmm. to look like what, what he what he asks a dad looks like. And yeah. he's, oh, he he's browsing a, through a magazine first. Like, oh like yeah, 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 yeah. Us Weekly, whatever the eighties. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and if if in this in the uh, Bong Joon Ho 2019-2020 remake of Terrace Texas, he'd be googling what does a dad look like, right? <laughs> like he would be on his phone, like what is dad, and like, Just like no, dad he'd be, going he'd be speaking to his like device. Echo, what is what does a dad look like? Okay, so you're saying that the Alexa, the, show me daddies. The housekeeper <laughs> would be replaced by Alexa. Amazon would have maybe financed the movie a good amount and be mm-hmm. on Amazon Prime. So, I mean, he does, like, play into this fantasy for a little while, right? He wants Mm -hmm. to play dress-up. He wants to walk his kid um, back home from school. Right. It's it's just interesting that it feels like a fantasy rather than, like, just getting dressed to take my son home from school. It's so pointedly fantastic, right? Right. And that that plays to what Harry was saying about um, the class politics that separate him and his brother. Like, we learn later on, uh, we always have, like, a little bit of an inkling that – that uh, w- that Travis ha- is just sort of from a exists in a different world from Walt, um, and that's explained by later on when we discover the things that came between uh, Travis and his wife that they were uh, living in a trailer when uh, you know a, a fire caught and she ran away because he was being abusive to her toward her, um, and that like sort of explains the class differences that are that exist between he him and the rest of his family essentially right and class differences that that might be enforced by um like unfortunately but in a in a real life way like um not mental disabilities but um psychological um debilities in mm-hmm. in a sense right like he he says that at some point like at one point like he literally like he would quit his jobs because he couldn't stand to be away from his wife which is like a, a, a troubling psychological sign, right? Yeah. Like it, it, he's so obsessed that he's literally like he can't take care of himself. Right. And he presumably didn't have access to uh, health care and, and assistance for the professional assistance for these things because he turns to the bottle to deal with his. Yeah. Uh, it's also mentioned that uh, that Jane had, I don't know if there's a, what the scientific turn is, but it, it mentioned she had like baby blues after having the child. Postpartum and, depression. Okay. Yeah. Free health care uh, for all. Yeah. I, hey, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and I think there is kind of like a again, no it's like it's like not like understated. Like I think it is like all that stuff is like the perfect level in the film, but like it really takes you a little while to actually because it is so focused on Travis's perspective, and then kind of at the end of the movie, a little bit on Jane's perspective. You kind of have to step back from this film and actually kind of piece together what is happening apart from. 
the things that they are telling you specifically, you know, that I think is like an interesting um, it's like an interesting use of like POV in that manner, I guess. Yeah. Let's talk about the things that signpost this movie, uh, particularly visually. What is that signpost this movie? What is that? That like can guide you toward a specific way of thinking about the characters and about the story and the direction. We already spoke about how the environment changes around Travis and how like it had changes because he's moving through it sort of thing. Sure. Uh, not necessarily exerting his influence on it, but that is like they're moving in parallel. It's a reflection. Right. Um, the other, another really striking way that this movie uh, does that visually is through the use of color. Um, early on in the movie, once he's, uh, I, I do want to get Jenny's take on this, but uh, my my, what I noticed is that like the first really striking use of color is probably his hat, yep. his red hat. Uh, which I think is it's literally the first shot, right, where he's he's walking through the desert. Is he's it? wearing the hat yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of looks like a MAGA hat. Pretty unfortunate. Makes it a hard Halloween costume in twenty <laughs> since 2016. Um, but I still do recommend it for <laughs> next Halloween, Halloween 2020. I will supply everything you need. Hey Harry, what are what are you for Halloween? Uh, I am the main character of Paris, Texas. I'm the average fucking American. I'm tra- film. Travis Just Henderson. Thirsty. <laughs> yeah. Didn't that guy beat his wife? Oh Jesus! Yeah. I didn't think about this. <laughs> Yeah, don't do that for Halloween. Don't pretend actually. this is a bad idea. This is don't, a great idea. Don't meme Travis. <laughs> yeah. Fellas. Uh, but no, but uh, it uses from the moment that uh, Travis passes out and he wakes up in this uh, ramshackle doctor's office in southwest Texas, wherever he is. Uh, he's bathed in this gross, like, neon green light with just oh, it's a not red. gross. It's cool. It's, it disgusts. Gusts me. It makes it makes no. my stomach turn. I mean, it's beautiful, but like, there's definitely it, a filter on that, right? Like, there's yeah. no like every street light even is like washed out yeah. in green. It's also in a, like in the Criterion Collection um, essay that comes with this. I can't remember who wrote it. I, I'm an asshole, so I disagreed with a lot of it. But uh, <laughs> at the at the end of it, um, they they talk about how this is a version of America that doesn't exist anywhere in reality anymore and maybe ever, never did and how it, it, it gives this this movie an elegy-like feel that only makes it feel more um, moving and beautiful in time and I think that, that that's an interesting point, Cody, because it's like we don't know if that's a filter, right? Or at least I don't. It seems right. like it is, but it, but like it, there, there's the sense in which the, the dream that that all of these characters have to give up is also a dream that this movie itself depicts in a sense at mm-hmm. least at first um and that's that's really well represented by the fantastical beauty of yeah there are moments when like a specific set will look like oz for how green beige yeah. it is uh and like at the same time you'll have really contrasting reds on his face like when he's laying down there's that shot where and it kind of makes him look like matthew mcconaughey weirdly uh, I mean, think about that shot. I'll have to pull uh, it up the, later to show the, you. Bong Joon-ho's remake will not star Matthew McConaughey. I'm putting okay, my foot down. Oh, because you want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> this is called competition. It's a pretty hard competition to beat, man. I hate to break it to you. I don't know. Have you seen Serenity? Hey. <laughs> Got him. Uh, uh, but but the, use, the use of green specifically, I'm still trying to put together why it like hit me like it did, but there are a couple other moments where it did going to get my notes. Uh, Jenny, you had yes. a few, too. You thought of a few specific examples in your letterbox review, which I can pull up if we'll you don't see remember. If they're I don't remember my letterbox okay, review well, I'll, from I'll, May. So. Okay, I'll, I'll bring mine out. We'll see if anything rings about any bells. Um, uh, in the makeshift hospital that we just talked about, uh, when he's opening the door to like the peep show, there's like a green light that is not reflected later. That once he steps in, there's no green light, if I remember correctly. And then obviously the parking lot at the very end, where he is down in the parking lot, and Jane is uh, greeting Hunter again for the first time in four years, um, and he is just down there 
uh, sort of uh, bathed in green light. To me, what the movie was doing in those moments was like providing moments of hesitation or pause or like consideration uh, for for whatever character was in there. Like uh, it's the moment at the beginning when Travis is sort of considering what he's doing out in the middle of the desert. He like has stopped for presumably the first time in a long time. Um, and then, of course, hesitation before actually entering the peep show and seeing if he's actually going to encounter his wife again. And then at the very end where he's like, it's out of his hands. They're up in the hotel room together and he's downstairs out in the parking lot. He can't do anything, but maybe he's feeling some hesitation at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you want to hop in with your letterboxed examples? Well, oh, my God. From ringside. Is that Jenny Hop again? Oh, my God. The goddamn chair. She's got a gun. Thanks for bringing me in, coach. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I was on this rewatch today, just prior to recording this, um, <laughs> trying to really make note of the color because I only really took it in towards the end of the movie on the first watch. Um, I kind of felt like the movie was bookended by green, and it wasn't terribly present in the middle, which makes me think that green was, you know, him coming out of this fugue state, out of his, like, running away um, from the world, and then it comes back in at a lot of mentions of Jane, and obviously she's wearing it and the green light that you were mentioning, Jason. So I, I kind of think that the the red are uh, is more prevalent on Travis as a person, and then also when he's being kind of like smacked in the face with what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, there's a really prominent red light when uh, Travis is talking to Anne, and she's giving him the reality of like, well, she used to call, or well, that Jane used to call, and then now there's this bank account, and that red light is just really beaming on their faces, and mm-hmm. he's like, well, maybe this is what I need to be doing instead. Mm-hmm. I can't keep on being here in L.A. and spit signing shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when he's when he's uh, recounting his backstory essentially to Hunter in the laundry room, that's a very prominently red scene mm-hmm. as well, yeah. right? Did anybody, uh, did the green remind anybody of Vertigo? It, like, really, oh, really man. struck me hard as Didn't, Vertigo. but that's a good pull. Uh, that is particularly the scene when, um, near the end of the movie in Vertigo, when the, um, his paramour, I can't remember any character names, um, is dressing up like um, he wanted her to, and he can just see who she's supposed to be in that dreamlike reflection. A lot of parallels between Vertigo and this movie about uh, fantasy uh-huh. and what it does. Um, that was an interesting um, reference yeah. for me. Um, v- yeah, very visual. Like, it's borrowing a lot of visual elements. You mentioned the very final scene um, on the, the green um, parking ramp. Uh, one, best parking ramp scene ever. Uh, every time when or I'm Fargo? walking to my Including car, Fargo. no, it's a better than Fargo. Um, that's a better parking ramp scene than Fargo. Whoa. Every time when I'm walking out to my car at night, I think about that scene. Uh, the the street lights in my parking ramp are not nearly as cool as that. Do you yeah. want to be wistfully looking at something before you? Hopefully, evaporate? my ex-wife, whom I have to give my ex, maybe un- undone the harm by my uh, work. I have to um, do that every maybe, day. I walk to my car. You know how hard that is to set up. I, I spend all my time thinking about all of the people I've wronged anyway, <laughs> so it, it's pretty uh, appropriate. Yeah, it works pretty well. Um, also, uh, the last song that they play is the only song that's not completely original by Ry. Um, what is his name? Ry Cooter. Ry Cooter. It's uh, is it dark was the night, cold was the ground yeah dark was the night cold was the yep. ground which was um originally by B- blind willie johnson um i cannot recommend the original recording highly enough it was one of the is it the challenger no it's not the challenger it was in it's 77 wasn't it what, whatever one went up in 77 yeah is the one that they said yeah they sent a gold-plated record containing um 
music and other audio that best sort of represents what it means to be a human being. Uh, and Blind Willie Johnson's um, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground was among that. I, it's the perfect song to choose for the end of this um, this movie. Um, this is uh, this is my favorite movie soundtrack, uh, like, bar none. Um, I, I have it on vinyl. Really? Uh, and the vinyl is wild because... Um, and we'll get into this in a minute, but the, one of the tracks is called I Knew These People, and it is just the full monologue no. that Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> oh, does. And so, no. like, I, I've been, like, in my apartment alone listening to <laughs> literally that whole monologue while I'm, like, trying to work. And I'll just be crying, and I'm like, I'm a fucking weirdo. Like, <laughs> like why am I listening to this, like, monologue from a movie? But, like, it's because the rest of the soundtrack is so good. Dude, if you are ever, ever, like... Just even like a faint suspect in a murder case, they're fucking getting you. They see that, they're like, "Oh no, yeah. this guy fucking did it, man." The yeah, skin, it's the skin stretcher killer. Like, yep, that's Harry. it's like t- ten minutes long, and it's it's like one full half of that album. Yeah. So you like you'll turn over the record, and then there will be like one nice uh, rad blue song, and then all of a sudden it's just Harry Dean Stanton's voice for ten minutes, and he's talking about the things that he did to his ex-wife. And it's like Jesus Christ, what's happening? <laughs> What it, what are they saying by making that a track on the sound on the license? <laughs> I think it's just a track. flex, right? It's like <laughs> Sam Shepard is like, yeah, I wrote the best monologue and it's failed. Literally, but now you're going to listen to it. Yeah, Jesus. Um, what other use? What I was gonna I was gonna while we're talking about like visual. Stuff, yeah, I was, about I was to say just gonna like, say first half of this movie uh, is not my favorite. This is just like a personal failing, but that kind of like specifically like southwestern United States like Americana is maybe like my least favorite. I do not. I like westerns because they're often so stylized. But like, I, I love this movie. I, I, I think I just re-ranked it like five on Letterboxd. Uh, I like it a lot. Thank you. I appreciate that. But that is like the second half of this movie, like really selling. Uh, the first half. I think the first half is great. It is purely personal. But like, this movie is like very similar to uh, Lynch's The Straight Story. Uh, which is also, like, not set in uh, West Texas, but is set in Iowa. And, like, I I lived in Texas for a bit when I was younger. I have been to Iowa a lot because I have mom's side of the family. Maybe it's something personal, but just, like, stretching roads like that is just my least favorite shit in the entire world. What do you think it does to your... Like it's my favorite shit experience. in the entire world. Is it uh, just like I hate seeing? That, no, I was so able I can't to absorb. No, no, no. I was screen. able to. I was able. I had to like detach myself for a little bit and just like do the thing. I think you often have to do uh, when watching, you know, slower films where you have to really like detach yourself from like what your kind of visceral reaction is, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to do that already. I think when watching this movie, just because it is like a very slow, like contemplative film. Um, but yeah, I don't. It's 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 uh it's not my favorite. Uh, oh, like stuff. I think I said this last night. I I grew up uh, a, a good portion of my childhood was spent in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, and so I really what Sorry. he was homeschooled. I don't, did you know that he? Was I was homeschooled. homeschooled. I'm half yeah. Greek. Got got five. Sorry, siblings. what's up with Louisiana? Um, I grew up in Louisiana, and it was like not the super like uh, boonies Louisiana. It was like fairly um, metropolitan, but like. A lot of the aesthetic of the South makes me remember not great times in my life. So sure. when I think about it, I'm sort of like put in that place. I'm not like desert mm-hmm. Texas, but uh, elements of, of living in the South don't ring super like comfortably to me. And that sort of engages me a little bit more. Sure. Okay. And that would be a, a particularly interesting through line to have for this movie where maybe the environment 
So, so the things I said earlier might have really spoken to you in that you had similar negative associations that Travis <laughs> did. Um, uh, yeah, in, in a sense. I mean, I, uh, I just like it's not something that it's not an aesthetic that appeals to me very much, but it's one that works. That worked yeah. very well with the story. For you, me. I mean, you have to set this movie in Southwest United States, yeah. right? Like. There's nowhere else you could set Route it. Route 66, you know? Yeah, sure. I think a different version of this movie would have cut out most of Travis and Walt's time together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we were afforded the opportunity to watch Travis become a human again, but otherwise, like, that's an easy place to cut <laughs> this movie. It's, it's interesting you say that because that also um, correlates really well with um, the writing process. Vim Vendors and Sam Shepard wrote this together. They originally wanted it to be... Um, a movie about two brothers and like their reconciliation and it became something else and they just sort of like attached that movie to this movie so you're right right like mm-hmm. like literally like the first third of this movie is kind of another movie it really really works for me and i think it it is a great commentary to to affix to um the the second half of this movie and is i would argue essential but you're you're still right right in this mm-hmm. in the sense that like if, if if this is a TV show, that's like where the the show didn't really right. know what it was doing. <laughs> you could still have the main plot beats and pull yeah. out most of his interactions yeah. with Walt. I, I think it's a big task for a movie to have the second half have to justify the first. And I think this movie maybe because it, it's about two and a half hours long, like it has a harder time of it than most. And I think you, it's kind of a testament to the movie that it pulls it off. What do you mean by that? That the second half justifies the first? Um, I think so much of this film is uh, a mystery, or not a mystery, but like a, a you know you are you are making assumptions about this character and trying to fill in gaps where you can about who this character is, his past, what his motivations are, um, and so much of this movie is is kind of you are following his journey and that your understanding of him is kind of aimless, right? Like it's it's not directed in, in any specific place because of the lack of information you have about him. And so the movie really has to just punch you in the face with everything in the last 20 minutes. And it does it, I think. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? No? Yeah, well, and, and that's that's the essential part that I, I very much see this like a mystery, like you said. And, and maybe the biggest part of the mystery, even beyond the textual, is the sort of mystery of... Uh, framing and emotion and yeah. empathy of this movie. It's like, how did we? How did this person come to see the world this way, the way that we now see the world? Because yeah. we're watching it through the sort of lens of of his experience, mm-hmm. or uh, we're we're looking at him through that lens. Um, and I think that that's why it works for me so well. Is that the the first half of this movie does that so well? It's like. Uh, it's like how the the best David Lynch movies, to use your example again, they sort of they they end up not only justifying the the surrealness of what's happening, but they they make the case that it has to be that way. Yeah. Like Mulholland Drive makes the case that it has to be that sequence. It I think has, this is like specifically with like Wild at Heart and Mulholland Drive. Uh, I, I mentioned him first earlier, so everybody listening uh, with your your drinking uh, bingo game. Take Aaron mentioning David Lynch. Take the shot. <laughs> uh, we're good except for that. Um, but yeah, I think this is like a great double feature with, with Mulholland Drive, right? Like the, it maybe yeah. a lot of Lynch's stuff in general is about, um, 
what it means to to have a dream and not a dream as specifically like a uh, like a physical I, I go to sleep I dream not a dream solely as like an aspirational like goal for yourself but like what it means for dreams to exist in the middle of those two things right mm-hmm. like what is it what is a dream an aspiration represented as a supernatural state um, and this film is not really concerned with that it is more concerned with like dreams and aspirations and our understanding of ourselves there's another but it fits in there the, the another intersection there is that they're specifically about american dreams right yeah. I, I, like a lot of lynch's stuff is similarly concerned with the the myth of america and the ideology undergirding it yeah um uh cody you uh wait first i should ask are we good to keep going we can cut this part out but we're we're already uh we're, we're at an hour ten. It. Just keep talking. How do we feel? How, can we get a vibe check? How do you How do you feel? Do you want to keep doing this? All right. Do you guys want to keep doing this? Yeah, we were just vibe talking. check. Everybody has going. We were we're just good. What were you, you going to say? Oh, I was going to ask. <laughs> he was just going to talk about how Paris, Texas, is a place where you finally sever your reality from your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted. To, uh, we're going to talk more about that, right? We are. I want to talk more about that. Uh, maybe we'll. Can we like? Can we cut this part and we'll jump back? But um bum. Uh, yeah, so I was going to ask Cody, um, you, early on you expressed trepidation or you, you expressed a struggle with the way that I think that this, this movie is maybe too sympathetic to Travis or this movie doesn't do a great job of representing its uh, gender politics or per- particularly in the, the agency that it affords to Jane mm-hmm. in that we don't see much of her. Could you speak a little bit more about that and like maybe we can work through some of that? Because I think that's a really important thing to work through. Yeah, and honestly just being present for this conversation. Sorry about your pen that fell on the floor. Peeling wow. back the curtain. Yeah, parting the kimono Call a little out. bit. Um, I feel like I, I feel better about it now. Um, the the fact that it's uh, a self imposed and self determined uh, sort of set of trials and tribulations that Travis goes through um, felt weird uh, watching and hearing him explain it um, because it seemed like he like the type of freedom you know he allowed himself to go forth into the world in a way that he never allowed jane to do um but he never let go of his well i was gonna say never let go of his pain uh in a way he did by letting go of his identity so i guess i ultimately tried to right exactly uh until he was brought back in i mean Uh, i I think that that you know i don't know if that i don't know what everybody's perception of this was but at the beginning of the film you're kind of led to believe that he has no memory of the things that had happened, right? That he, had, right. I think that's shown to be a lie by the end of the movie, I agree. right? Um, or, I, or it's it's complicated, right? I think that there there is some sense in which uh, his trauma is um, repressing his memory, sure. But I don't know. I don't think that there's a hard point at which repression is um, undone. Yeah. I, or or how truthful that repression is. I took that specifically. The the color red. Uh, to me, always kind of spoke to um, his search for Jane, right? Or his, I, I think red just in general, just just is Jane is red essentially. Um, right. I, I I agree. I'm I'm shaking because I the, literally shaking. He was right now. Hey. the the co- the coloring in this movie, uh, along yeah. with that green. The green is to me was sort of like turning points, reminders of his journey, kind of thing. Uh, red was sort of like 
I, I don't know, keeping it going like another shot of gas. Like every time that we see red, it's in there. Someone's in pursuit of something. I, I think the maybe this is me just like seventh grade or like like tenth grade. Uh, like film I'm operating in ninth, ninth grade, like, so I think the fact he wears a red hat is because that he has not forgotten Jane. It is still on his mind. Uh, he clearly literally. is not like li- li- literally is it, that is. In his brain. Well, you can find metaphor. You can you can find that. Find metaphor. You can find that in later when both uh, Travis and Hunter are wearing red shirts when they're on their way to find Jane, or like there's one shot, forget exactly when it is in their journey, but we zoom in uh, through like really slow editing on uh, horses' hooves galloping in a neon sign at like a nearby. It's when when they're talking about the speed of light, and he says, "How long was it? Would it take to get to Houston?" Uh, at the speed of light, and he says two seconds. That kid was wrong about some of those scientific <laughs> facts. <laughs> it was yeah, very much so. Very hey, simplistic. He was seven, if we, if almost we eight. Get, eight. So, cinnamon sins real, real quick. Uh, but yeah, you you were saying about the color representing. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't know. I just to I guess try try and tie that because I think we went on a we went our own little journey uh, off the point you made, and I feel bad because I don't know a way to tie it back to what you were saying. That's okay. I can jump on uh, the thing that you started. Yeah. Um, I like both your readings. Uh, I like everybody's readings about the colors. Um, in, instead of red being like a manifestation of something Travis is chasing, I saw it more as like the opposite. Uh-huh. Like it was the mark he left on things. Like the when we're back at uh, Walt and Anne's house, like the moments when the red really pops is when it's uh, an indication of like, like we're, we're, we're witnessing uh, events unfold that are the, the effect of him being there. Like the first time I, and y'all mentioned some moments of red at that estate that came before this. But the first time I really noticed the red was when uh, it was after that phone call with, um, with Hunter uh, where he called just to let him know that, you know, hey, I've been kidnapped, bye. Um, <laughs> and uh, right before Anne goes up and hangs out on Hunter's Star Wars bed sheets, uh, there's this, yeah, like, brilliant red glow. Um, and as far as the green goes, uh, I'm just going to keep talking. Uh, I really like that. Uh, I don't have Paris, Texas yet uh, on Criterion. I intend to pick it up and read that essay mm-hmm. uh, Harry was mentioning. You collect films? I, I collect them. You I'm missing. Buying Criterion films? Yeah, I'm missing one though. Uh, someone has my Stray Dog uh, DVD. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, you do. What, what DVD was that? Uh, Stray Dog. Uh, the Kira Kurosawa 1949 film Stray Dog. Yeah, I think I saw a copy of that at my place. Really? Uh, was it? Oh, so do you, you think? Have it. Or is it maybe your roommate? It wasn't Jason. on my shelf. Interesting. Oh, we we is can it explore punk to argue mystery. about Stray Dog mystery. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It is punk rock. Uh, to split hairs about my possessions. So you plan um, to buy it? Uh, I do plan to buy it, uh, and because I I feel like that complements my reading of, uh, or just like how I I saw the color green, which was uh, it felt like it was um, like uh, temporality, uh, things that that were fleeting, especially. Um, so like the the first act when they're going through it, it's maybe poignant that. Uh, like there is this supposed filter where the streetlights don't emit like white or yellow light. It's everything is explicitly green because they're lining the roads that people are are going down. That Travis is going down uh, these Americana ass diners that they're stopping at. Um, they're they're pit stops on the road to something greater. Uh, the movie ends with uh, you know like we we talked about that that parking ramp 
uh, shot where Travis is just bathed in green um, because that you know that is a moment that he's never going to have again. That's like a, a family that he's he's never going to see again. Um, yeah, I we're going to do it. We're going to do the thesis antithesis another synthesis uh, bit. No, this is my other bit, uh, which is the Aristotle <laughs> thing. It's two bits. Um, this is yeah. the second bit. Uh, ding ding. You you had said that um, I mean red represents um, Travis's pursuit. Cody, you had said that it represents the mark that he leaves behind. Uh, Cody and I will now fight to determine which of those I'm is correct. I'm on Cody's side. It's both. I will I fight mean, both like, of you to that's, determine. That's what's, uh, so, that's what's so brilliant about the bad. fact that that we both that you all derived that mm-hmm. is that I think it can be both. Right? It's, it's just Travis's I, color. I, I, sure I he's playing the centrist here. He's trying to play both it's sides. It's not centrism. He he is. He's trying it's to make everybody happy. A centrist synthesis. Centrist. So this this is a, this is a movie about how Travis thinks that by going on this journey, he can negate himself. He can undo those those wrongs and uh, and undo the things that he left behind. And in the process, going on this journey is also the process of leaving things behind. Right? He is making his mark on the family that he helps destroy again. He makes his mark on Hunter. There are really great scenes where Travis arguments that Travis causes are visited upon Hunter literally. He's in his bedroom. He's listening to his parents argue. Um, brutal. Um, one thing is the other, right? And that that failure of Travis to undo himself and instead to continue to perpetuate the sort of traumatic pattern of self that he's imposing on the world over and over again is the story of this movie, the story that he realizes he has to end the vicious cycle he has to end by um negating uh, by removing himself from it by right. by Im- deciding to finish the journey or um uh stop taking that that journey to to instead of meet jane in the hotel room with mm-hmm. hunter to get to get yes. out of there, yeah to get that's in his truck the, and drive the away final i always i always called it like the only good thing travis has ever done right but it's it is just leave it's yeah uh, well, again, I guess. And he, um, but but all that is to say that that red can then represent both of those things, right? Like it, it because the the journey toward something is also the journey of your imposition upon what you're journeying through. I think you have made a good point. We will not fight to the death, but I'm a little bummed about it. Uh, there will be other opportunities. Okay, that's good. Okay. Um, should we talk about? Uh, we we should talk about either the final scene or where Travis Travis's trauma comes from and, and how it's characterized or something Jenny wants to talk about. <laughs> That's definitely not putting her on the spot. <laughs> I did it on purpose. For once, it's not me. I want to put Cody on the spot. I want to get some <laughs> Cody's noties. Already? <laughs> Cody's got noties? Is it time? Is Might it time, time for Cody. Cody's noties? You have to do sister, sister. You didn't know that? Okay, <clears throat> three. Two, that's not one. sister sister. Cody's noties. Cody's noties. We'll, try, we'll be sister sister, but it's fine. Do you see the bullshit I have to put up with to make this podcast? <laughs> yep. Um, shout out to Claire Denis, who served as uh, an assistant director for sure. this movie and yeah. Wings of Desire. I just read wow. that today. I did not know that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, also, shout out to uh, Hunter, who definitely had his knives out. Y'all see that white sweater he was wearing? Hey. I didn't actually. He so was dripping. You should join that Twitter thread. Okay. All right. Find RV please on, on Twitter. Uh, yeah. I, how many people here have their knives out? It's you, 
uh, Harry do, yep. does. Just for everybody who doesn't know what that's talking about, we own the sweater from Knives Out because we bought it on the internet. Uh, it's, it was a, it's a sweater that existed it's before this. Yes. <laughs> no, Knives Out invented fluffy white sweaters. But then you're gonna, like, get a, a tasteful, like, worn in hole. Yeah. Do I hear some jealousy from someone who might not have a cable knit sweater over there? Is that what <laughs> I'm hearing? It's very warm in this room. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> could wear one. <laughs> I don't want to think about wearing more clothing right now. Here's the thing. If you did have one, you'd be wearing it no matter what because you're like, I can't take off this great looking cable knit sweater. Yeah. Harry's with me. He has one. There's a SpongeBob episode about this, isn't there? No, I don't. Uh, Say what you just said. What's the SpongeBob episode we're looking for? I don't remember. This could be a Cody's notey. Say what you just said again. Sweater. Oh, yeah. The best time to wear a striped sweater is all the time. Something like that. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, (laughs) I pulled that out of my out of my glossary. Best time to wear a striped sweater is all the time. (laughs) One with a turtleneck. That's the kind. I did not watch SpongeBob growing up. That's why you're so fucked up. Yeah, I agree. Cody's notes keep going. Uh, well, I don't know. I want to end on that, but I've already started. I've already started the sentence. I can't started down this road. I can't let you finish this without asking you what you saw from Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire that was in this or the other way around. Sure, this movie is fucking Wings of Desire, bro. It's not that every time you're like the wing wings. It's like Scotty, but yeah. Come on, I never mispronounced Brianna Scotty. Uh, I think, so, uh, disclaimer, if I get anything wrong, it was about five years ago when I watched this. Uh, there are certain images from Wings of Desire that stand out um, to me, and uh, the. So I guess a couple steps back. Wings of Desire is about uh, an angel who falls in love with uh, a human woman, um, a, an acrobat, a performer in the circus. He falls in love with her, and to be with her, he... Uh, strives. He he takes a sort of journey to become a, a mortal man. I don't uh, remember selling person. my life rights for that movie. <laughs> Yikes! Cody, keep, uh, keep wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. Uh, well, I'm ruined. Uh, We've descended into just chaos this is what happens at this point. The, it, we're doing the backwards of what this movie does, where we uh, are disintegrating <laughs> okay. towards infancy. <laughs> Um, uh, there are some things that are uh, very starkly similar and starkly di- uh, different. The cinematography that comes with um, uh, a few different angels, uh, including Peter Falk playing himself uh, as a, a former angel. He doesn't need to play anything. He is an angel. Exactly. Uh, every, uh, it, people are, uh, these angels are exploring the busy streets of, of Berlin. Um, there is a lot, like it's weird to say, but there are a lot of just sequences of, of people walking around and talking. Uh, the exploring of the space is really important. Um, exploring the material Earth, uh, first as an angel and then as, as a human person, uh, is, is really important. You feel the texture of that. Um, granted, uh, this movie is framed by a lot of like very lofty, important conversations, which this movie does not have, at least at the beginning. Uh, but then Travis starts talking. Um yeah, Wings of Desire is good. I think it is a Criterion release. I don't own it. Maybe I'll change that because that movie's pretty good. Cool. Thank you, uh, Cody, for the noties. Is that Close. the end of the noties? Um, yeah. Well, okay. One more thing. Okay. The uh, I just said thank you. Uh, I just, I just, I just, dude, I just take it back. One more thing. <laughs> I take back the thing. Uh, P.S. Uh, well, how about that? Sure. Okay. P.S. Um, there was a. Uh, I was most happy in this film when there was a. They were trying to find the rental car that they had previously. Um, I, I I don't know what cars look like. I don't know what characteristics comprise a car. I don't know what make and models are. I don't know what a steering wheel is. 
but uh, all my life I've gravitated towards memorizing license plate numbers. Um, you are very good at that. I think you know my license plate number. You don't need to I'm say it. I'm not going to say it on the, the air. Uh, I don't know my license plate number, so uh, it's impressive. And uh, I, when the, the first time we see that bumper of that car, uh, I was like, okay, 667 DJP. That's not going to be important, but I'm going to remember this. Uh, and then they were going through the lot. And I was like, they're not going to say it. They're not going to validate uh, this uh, this shitty tick I have. Uh, and then she reads it off the clipboard, and I felt validated for literally the first time in my life about this and maybe anything. Yeah, thank God for the script supervisor making sure that it actually did line up. That there's you should make a, any. You should make a letterbox list of movies where license plates are important. Um, Uncle I'm so Buck. charmed by Cody. Uncle that Buck. is uh, that would be my uh, what I would call my life's work. Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. You can't my, reduce my, it to my a um, I'll, I'll work on this. It'll take eighty years to complete. Cody passes away. There's like a five hundred page poem. His family members. I did nonsense. It's every license plate I've ever seen. It's like the Metaculus from yeah. uh, <laughs> a serious man. Yeah, yes, it is very much that. Uh, I think we need to talk about the last scene in this movie. Let's do it. Probably. There's so many things That's I still the, want to talk about, dude. Let's do it. We're running. All right, Jenny, you were going to say something. Oh, I have my own note. <laughs> Woo! Jenny's noties. Um, okay, so I found myself really struck by the scene of Travis and oh shit, the kid's name Hunter. Hunter. <laughs> Travis and Hunter kid. talking about space and his inaccurate depiction of how long it would take to get to Houston. That dipshit's extremely uh, inaccurate. Um, but also, when I was uh, reading about this movie, I wrote down a quote from somebody, and I don't know who. So this is, I'm sorry. Ooh. But um, they're referring to this movie as escaping now to find then, and I immediately thought of how space is an image of how something used to be. So that's also just kind of like uh, repeated in this movie really often. Though we never actually get flashbacks aside from the Super Eight, um, but we do get this leads into the final scene, the retelling of how the family completely exploded and burned and how it's all about the pursuit of that yeah yeah it's all about um, i've never thought about that before but that metaphor is that uh looking up at the sky um astronomy is is also in a sense um looking for the past and the housekeeper says if you want to be a rich daddy you always had to look up at the sky never at the ground this could and be like a... Travis is obsessed with the ground. Yes, he is. This could be like a good sci-fi thing. Hold on to that. Don't say too much. We'll work on it. We'll make like a <laughs> RPG setting or something. It'll it'll happen. Harry didn't Damn. like that. Harry was uh, like, no, no, I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm still reeling from that. Take <laughs> that. Uh, yeah. Final scene. Yeah. I don't know where we start off with that. It's like, it's like uh, one of the greatest things I've seen in a movie, maybe. Yeah. Like, it, it is... Uh, kind of ostentatious maybe like mm-hmm. a little bit like you were always aware that you were like watching cinema right uh, um, th- I mean like like Sam Shepard is a playwright I watch cinema right yeah. and like this is extremely a playwright scene it was like like this is it's it's two shots right like it's it's a camera that that like moves between a wall yeah. on either side and it's a nine minute monologue followed by a five minute monologue and like yeah. that's the the scene it and, could be and, a one-act play in itself yeah like yeah. You, mm-hmm. i could watch that and be very happy yeah. for a film it. that is so like naturalistic that scene is like not you know what i mean like there there are so many like visual metaphors and, and symbols that are just like so in your face um over the course of the scene i don't think that's a bad thing i think it like makes the scene work kind of um jason uh I, well, we had a conversation earlier that we almost started about who gets to tell their story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is almost exclusively Travis recounting what happened in pretty florid language, like you're saying, as if it's from a script. Um, 
until Jane does, right? And she I, does. Yep. Yeah, until Jane does at the end, and I her think monologue her, is maybe um, one that I appreciate even more. But it's not yeah. on the vinyl. It's not on the vinyl, <laughs> which is upsetting, right? It's not fair. Hey, good point. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? Uh, so what? We, oh, I was. Gonna say, is it weird to say that I like their first scene together more than no, the second one? That's a great scene. Um, I the the there was a, a really jarring turn in that scene, right, where we're looking at. Um, at Jane head on. Uh, and this is someone that Travis has spent all this time, all these years, um, all these steps in his, uh, Fitbit trying to, uh, wipe her from his memory, uh, to do anything but engage with that pain, uh, with, with those emotions any longer. And here we are sitting, um, and she's, she's looking right at us. Uh, she's looking right at Travis. Looking great. Looking right at us. Looking fantastic. (laughs) Looking right at us. Uh, Jenny, you were correct. <laughs> well, so I think it's interesting. The first scene, I think um, she's in this like bubblegum pink sweater thing. And <laughs> I think uh, she's staged in a hotel, which is a very um, temporary environment. Mm-hmm. And Liminal. then, right? And then we get to um, see his rage bubble up. And then he leaves, and she's feeling like, what the fuck? I'm distraught now. <laughs> what did you do to me? <laughs> uh, but then the second time we're visited is in a cafe, which mm-hmm. is maybe more of a domestic environment, mm-hmm. and that's when they really get to have their uh, long talk where they share both their sides of the story. But, I don't know. I guess this is where I'm trailing off. Interesting note about that first sequence, and another, this is maybe my third bit, my, um... <gasps> he has a third bit! <laughs> my, uh, no! Stand back! My resentment of uh, Roger Ebert. In Roger Ebert's review of Paris, Texas, he characterizes that first meeting as... Travis performing that rage in order to find out if um, Jane is in a place where she can have their child. I is she in a so. That is utter horseshit. I think yeah. he just like got out of control and couldn't help Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact that he got under control is extremely important to this movie. <laughs> I read it's, that review too and I thought also it, thought that was horseshit. It's fucked, dude. Yeah. Like, it's, the, it's the worst mis- I, like I get it. Roger Ebert is a very talented person and he, he's seen 10 billion movies. Sometimes you whiff. But it was like, man, <laughs> the, the fact that Travis has not beaten has not mastered himself is fucking very important to this movie my dude and like his reading is that literally before the events of this movie travis has mastered himself has mastered the rage that's inherent inside of him which is a a completely different and worse movie oh that's his secret he's always angry just like me. If there was like a plot twist where he was like, it was intentional the entire time, like that That's was That's what the, I'm saying. That's yeah, like the, yeah, the, the no, fucking okay. Thanos gambit that, that this dude <laughs> is trying to we do. We both made Marvel references. That's oh, awesome. Jesus. I was talking about Thanos, the Egyptian god of death. Thank you. Uh, Thanatos. All right. So let's take it back in. Um, <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> when do we think Jane realized that she was talking to Travis? Because she does say, of course, I, I hear your voice in every man that comes in here, right? But when that line she, destroyed me, by the way. Uh, it's maybe the best line in the whole movie. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but when do we think she actually realized? Like, It seemed like it most um, intensely hit her when it's like, well, we lived in a trailer because it's really grounding to the place because I guess maybe this could have been some far-off story and people in different circumstances and different realms of class and life. There's an interesting... Um, parallel to her understanding um, in that I think that she probably knows before she's able to real or, um, she represses it right in the in sort of a similar mm-hmm. way that Travis represses his memory um, because like it, it seemed clear to me that she probably knew Travis was like literally like as soon as he started talking that second time 
or just about. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I it took know. her a bit. Yeah, sure. there there are certain lines or, or I guess you know chunks of this monologue from Travis that I feel like get her part of the way there because she'll. Trailer, inter- uh, yeah, the trailer is like a really key one. Um, and you know she'll pipe in with saying like, "Oh yeah, really?" And then what happened? And that's like, okay, she's she's getting closer. Wait, does the vinyl have her like interjections? Yes. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> uh, there is uh, a visual shift in that that I guess climactic sequence, that second one that they have together, where we are brought onto her side of the booth, and it's just a close up on her face for like five minutes, uh, and it's um, it is heart wrenching. I feel like that is maybe when she's like. I don't know. She's, like, pretty well certain. And then she starts breaking down from there. I don't know. How is she not full-on, like, just bawling? Full-body heaving? Yes. I have no idea. (laughs) Wow. What a strong woman. (laughs) (laughs) I think the most impressive part of that scene, like, you know, obviously uh, Harry Dean Stanton is doing his his monologue there. Um, She is, like, maybe outacting him just with her facial expressions. That is the focus of every single person in the audience is, like, you are just looking at her face. Like, it's, it's what is she unreal. realizing? Her, her body posture is really yeah, telling as amazing. well. Amazing. It's it's like like this is a it's a performance where she appears in this movie like a quarter to two hours into this movie. She she doesn't have that huge a, a role ostensibly like except on the impact that she has and on the the sort of implied impact of the whole movie. It's like it's it's a unbelievably defining performance right like it's it's crazy um she uh she wrote a character diary for her character um which is my favorite uh piece of trivia about this movie uh but also sort of a heartbreaking one in and of itself because like uh to to cody's point early like i want that movie too right like Mm -hmm. i would love to see that story that she wrote in her diary be the movie maybe instead of this movie i think that's maybe the criticism to make of this movie i think that this movie um responds to that criticism well but again like that's a valid criticism that somebody could have um what would that movie be called it would not be called paris texas that means nothing to her Mm -hmm. Uh, houston texas (laughs) bubblegum pink sweater thing uh, Coming my, to the trial of my favorite track on the vinyl is Houston in three seconds is the name of the song. Uh, I think it's maybe the best name for a song ever, really especially good. like given uh, this the movie's attachment. So I would probably call it Houston in three seconds. <laughs> it's a shame that that uh, Twitter that film Twitter meme of like your favorite. Uh, female performances in cinema. Oh, yeah. It's a shame that that passed. Uh, Natasha Kinski would probably make my top four. Uh, again, she floored me. She's only in here for, yeah, I mean, right. 20 minutes of this movie, 30 minutes. Yeah. Anything else about that last scene? Oh, man, it's... I mean, I would, yeah, again, that shot when the camera changes and you just see the insulation of the walls, I think that is, like, yeah. kind of the ultimate visual metaphor for what this movie is saying about, like, the American dream and our dreams and what that's actually made up of. I don't think it's cynical so much as it, like, it is not just, like, a hollow facade. Like, there is actually a lot inside of there. Um yeah, just that. That's great. There's the shot. We probably bring up the shot where they both lean in their faces and they're reflected in each other's. Also, uh, uh, like beautiful. Yeah. What is required for the person on the other side of the glass to see the world the way that they do? Yeah. Is that insulation in that um, construction? Yeah. Um, oh, sh- quick shout out to the lady to the left of us at the Trilon who, when the shot happened where they lean in and they're reflected, she went, that's a nice shot. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> She's you're right. right. That is a nice shot. <laughs> She's right, TBH. Pretty good uh, one. Um, lady at the Trilon, come on the pod. Come on the pod. That's right. Uh, 
I really love uh, Natasha Kinski's monologue. Um, it it is like really stating the themes of the movie in a similar way that this whole scene sequence does, where she talks about how. Uh, even after Travis left, he was such a huge part of her life. She, he lived in her head. Uh, the the wound that he inflicted on her um, after abusing her, um, it existed to the point where he was inside of her to the and like repressing her to the point where she was him almost more than she was herself. Yeah. Until um, as time passed, he came to disappear, and she had a sort of similar relationship that he did to the event where she repressed it, and he was able to disappear from her life. Um, but that wasn't true, because as she went to work, every man possessed Travis's voice, and that trauma resounded through her life and affected everything that she felt and saw. Um, it's it's heartbreaking and i think it's it's really well characterized and really true to the way that it feels um i think it's interesting that in both of their respective monologues uh they, they can't look at each other one of them is always facing away from the other uh in in her scene i think it, it kind of ties to what you just said about why she is turning away whereas for travis he is specifically turning away because he does not want to look at something that is essentially a fantasy right it is a it is a fancy environment that she is in. She is dressed up to fulfill a certain role for the clients that come in. And I think he partly needs to turn away so that he can actually like speak truthfully uh, in a manner that he was not able to in the scene um, where they had met earlier. Um, and and it, it kind of it contrasts, right? Like they both have kept certain things from the relationship that they cannot let go of in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Three more things I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, I will go really fast, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about it very much. This is my favorite movie. Um, but uh, here he can have a little uh, exposition. <laughs> um, yeah, I promise I won't talk as much on the next one. Uh, the first uh, shit. Now I can't even remember what I was. Oh, um, this this movie's take on self-loathing is something that's really important to me. Um, and, and a big part of why I, I love it as much as I do, and that is to say that to characterize Travis's trauma, it's not even his own, necessarily. Uh, it's it's a reaction to his father and a, a, a need to escape from the legacy of his father. He hates what his father did to his mother, and, and the idea that his father thought he was better than Paris, Texas, and thought he could be more than Paris, Texas. He carries the hate that his father had for his mother inside of him, he thinks that that he is similarly traumatized by his father as his mother was where he came from paris texas that's what he says he buys an empty plot of land because in paris texas because it's where he was conceived that inferiority complex that he came from nothing that he came from the desert that he later emerges out of again is what drives his pain he believes that he is um he's not worthy of Jane um, and there there's a lot of really fascinating intersections there uh, she's much younger than he is she's beautiful she's more intelligent than he is and and like clearly has a better sort of um, future ahead of her and the the crux of their argument is ultimately that she comes to realize that she comes to, to think she at one point accuses him of having a child with her to trap her uh, but and and that that is the pain for him because he knows that or he feels that he is shackling her 
by by his presence in her life because he is something contemptible and small like his mother in the eyes of his father and so there's there's this sense in which Travis's self-loathing is what is the engine that perpetuates his um violence against her it, that it's a reaction against a self perception of how other people perceive him as nothing right um that's a really important note for me in this movie is that it's it, it's about how he thinks other people see him uh because of the way he sees himself and how um that pressure that he imposes on himself that he doesn't think he's equal to is integrated with the way that we think about the American dream and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a father um, and what it affects in life and particularly how it hurts the people that don't deserve to be hurt by it like Jane um, that's so that's a that's a big thing that this movie um, comments on in a way and in the way that the movie suggests getting around it which is not that you can overcome it through force of will or you can overcome it through I don't know uh, much that of you can just step away it, it it seems to be the best or not step away necessarily but it 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 reframes the work of who you are as a person of self-actualization into addressing and overcoming your own shit <laughs> so to speak instead of perpetuating it or adding to it it seems to suggest to me that that um growth and being a good person is about addressing those things inside of you and there's there's almost like a, a psychic overcoming of traumas intergenerationally um that there's the suggestion that at the end of this movie that because travis did what he did hunter might be able to have a life that mm -hmm. travis didn't right and that's the sort of thing that that travis did is he created a better world for the future um, where where uh, Hunter might not be shackled by the same traumas that Travis was. Right. Yeah. Um, does anybody else... What does anybody else think about that? Sorry to talk so much. Oh, my God. I think that sounded really good. Stop. Uh, I think that was good. No, stop. <laughs> um, Are these Harry's noties? I was going to say, he said, he said, uh, uh, that uh, Harry said that was one of my notes, and we didn't get a chance to say... Harry's noties. Uh, this is Harry's like spent two years doing nothing but thinking about this movie and like the first time I saw this listening movie, to this record alone in your apartment. <laughs> yeah, right, over and over again. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, I uh, it was the end of summer. Um, this is a great end of summer movie, by the way, and uh, it was like twelve thirty, and I just like walked outside i i live by the lake of the isle shout outs to local people i walked around the lakes barefoot from like midnight to like intentionally barefoot yeah <laughs> playing your steel guitar barefoot? Yeah. The slide. yeah i'm a weirdo i don't Bit. know wearing uh, denim on denim. like shoes on what like do you three mean? in the morning or something no walking barefoot i went no i wanted to connect to the earth dude yeah. i wanted to be i know like, it does rule but you just can't do it you know what are you talking about? of course you can it's illegal. Actually. It's Minnesota, of course you Harry's can. become one of those people on Facebook that joins like a, a barefoot like walking club. It's like <laughs> there's no law that says you can't do that. You can't. There's says nothing in the rule book that's required. Healthy. You can it's walk legal. barefoot around the lake. Go off, King. Yeah. Harry can breathe. have a little barefoot. <laughs> Harry, what, what else you got in the notebook over there? Uh, oh, uh, we should talk about the uh, um, the really pivotal Super 8 scene. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Does somebody else want to talk about that? Um, I it reminded me of Twin Twin Peaks. Yes, it did. <laughs> a lot of the so much Twin yeah. Peaks. A lot, yeah. 
Oh, like Laura Palmer with the... Yeah. Well, yeah. And then also, uh, first time I watched it, I couldn't tell the difference between um, Jane and Anne at mm-hmm. all. So I'm like, oh, these two like that beautiful blonde women. Yeah. Like, who's think... holding the kid? What's happening? Are they related? <laughs> Do you think they're related? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, that'd be okay. weird. Um, I like... Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> unlike the rest of this movie, that'd be weird. <laughs> I like the Super 8 film uh, itself as its own sequence and uh, kind of like how... In real life, Travis engaging with people add seems to add another layer to with each interaction to his his persona uh, to his personality. Um, the more we watch that film, it, we kind of do the same thing. And then uh, the very last impression we get of Travis is uh, is him. He, well, I guess, up to this point, you know, we see him walking in very conscious straight lines. His eyes are forward. He's not deviating from this path he's on again. Like he's uh, like he's kind of like he's in a trance. Um, and then it, it, contrast that with this Super 8 film, which ends with him walking side by side with his son. And he's taking like random, very randomized deviations from that path, walking side to side uh, for no other reason than to just be a goofball. Uh, but like that, that was a real, that was jarring in itself. That was like, uh, that was a big 180. Yeah. Uh, that scene for me is not as, I don't know that I felt anything as deep as what the movie was trying to get me to, but just like the feeling, you know, when you're watching a movie and yes. you're very engrossed, you're very <laughs> engrossed in it, and something outside the frame of the television you're watching it on gra- grabs your attention and it's broken, like yeah. your entire train of thought is broken, your connection to the film is broken. That is like like Jason checks his phone. <laughs> you guys finished? No, no, please. I'm sorry. Go on. No, go on. You guys finished? Jason, I'm sorry. Jason, we're sorry, man. Come on, man. Look, that is in this scene more yeah. than any other movie I've ever seen where uh, Travis is distracted by looking at Hunter and Smiling a couple of times, just like awkwardly, very heartbreakingly because they're mm-hmm. watching better times. They're watching like who they used to be um, and what maybe that they would like to be again, or at least he would like to be with Desperately. Hunter. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it just it doesn't let up any of the diegetic sound playing in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I believe it's still the Rykuter soundtrack over yeah. top of that, uh, and it just nailed that feeling of like when you're disconnecting from a thing, from that your like your fantasized reality by like what's really in the world, and having to realize, well, I can't I can't focus on this thing for mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. It like there is something that needs that's me. really interesting. That needs yeah. me. Uh, those you're right. Those were really awkward glances uh, that Hunter and his father exchanged. I wasn't convinced if that was him, like, truly emoting or if he was thinking, like, on some level, like, this is how I should be reacting to this. Like, because this is my son and I need to, like, look over at him and smile. Mm -hmm. And then you compare that to when he sees uh, Jane on screen, like, that was very real. Uh, You know, he's got, like, his head in his hands. Like, that was way more convincing. Yeah. I mean, that's rolled into what I was was trying to say is that, like, he is... Um, it, it's unpacked later in the movie why he responds to the movie that way right, to, right. to the Super 8 film uh, like what we're up to at that point is sort of like a I don't know the movie the first part of this movie is kind of like a Rain Man situation where they try to portray like the one character as completely out of the loop and dependent on somebody else um, for lack of you know his own ability to get by on his on his own um, and that scene sort of like gives him a little bit more interiority than he had previously yeah. because you see him naturally emoting to a thing on a screen. Mm-hmm. 
So I kind of took that scene, um, you know, when you're like a, a kid and you're watching a video of yourself when you're even younger, you don't really relate that to an experience you've had, but it's just like, oh, someone's telling me a story and then now it's in my memory. Mm-hmm. I kind of took it as Travis experiencing the same thing. Like he doesn't really know himself as that happiness, as um, having a great time walking in like dissonant paths with this kids and or with his one kid. And yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, someone's telling me that it used to be this way. And then he tries to, like, pursue this fantasy again. Like, maybe I can be your dad and I'll walk you to school. He, right. we'll he have a great time. He literally yeah. adopts it, right? Yeah. And, and like, like he the, must be rich daddy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the movie um, had, had, had him as an amnesiac, and you can see him coming back to life during that. And the double-edged sword of what that means, right? Like, it's, it's extremely sympathetic because who wouldn't want that on the screen? But also there, there's the sense in which, like, the fact that he wanted that so badly is part of what made him feel like, uh, why, like, what if I'm not good enough for this? Like, you can see the the pressure, um, that that sort of the undercurrent beneath that, um, and and how nobody felt like they were actually equal to it because, like, what a beautiful, perfect thing it is, and like, real life can't be like that. It's mm-hmm. it's a movie. Um, one of my favorite lines in this movie is when when Hunter asks. Um, his mom, um, I can't, I keep Jane. losing her name. No, Anne. Anne. Anne, not Jane, uh, his adopted mother. Um, He's if, got two dads and two moms. Yeah, if uh, if Travis still loves um, Jane and um, Anne says, um, I don't know, and then Hunter says, I think he does uh, because of the way that he looked at her in the movie, but that's not her. Mm-hmm. That's uh, just a picture of her. Um Ouch. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, which he's a Star Wars fan, so that makes sense. But that's the idea, right? Is that, like, there is this perfect past or this perfect idea, and the idea becomes a sickness, like mm-hmm. like this movie says. is like, like Travis feeling like he could never be equal to the man that he saw in those that movie uh, that could be loved by those people so completely is what let him down the, the dark path. I think that also ties into how the movie is deconstructing American film yes. in a way. Yeah, I don't have more to say. I just think that yeah, you you got me thinking. Like that seems probably a little more meta than I was giving it credit. Oh, for. Oh, sure, that's a really interesting <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, especially coming from Vim Vendors. Yeah. Uh, what? What? Who? Vim Vendors. Isn't that his name? It is his name. Have we come to the Vim Vendors movie? <laughs> you, Vim M Enders. The Vend of this. I don't know. Yeah, this this movie means a lot to me, right? Because like yeah. it's it's about um, it, it's about responsibility in a really um, profound way to me. Um, the res- the responsibility we have to um, ourselves and each other, and also um, to you know the, the world, the generations, and and that responsibility being about reconciling with and undoing uh, the evils that were wrought. And we rot, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know. Um, One yeah. thing we didn't talk about the screaming man on the bridge. That's one of my favorite scenes too. Um, Why? That, do you I, have an actor there? Uh, it's Tom Farrell. I have nothing to say about that guy in particular. <laughs> Pretty sucks, actually. I wasn't gonna say anything. Uh, no, but I, I just never really knew what to take of it because uh, in that scene. Um, we see Travis walking, and the voice kind of gets louder. He passes by him, takes like a pause, like for a second, and then he keeps going. And then we see that he's talking to Walt um, on a billboard or whatever. But I kind of thought he was already leaving. Um, 
so I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm curious to hear other thoughts about that. I also didn't really know how to put that together in my head. I, I enjoy it because it does show like a, there's a little pat that Travis gives to the guy yeah. as he's walking by. Instead of like being fearful of him, he like almost he connects, can empathize with him. Almost empathize. He's like, I took a path guy. of silence, but exactly, you know, we're on the same page. <laughs> no, that's no, but that's like unironically, like yeah. that's yeah. literally what it. Yeah, uh, is, uh, is obviously, that, I would take. Yeah, is that the level at which it's operating for everybody else? Yeah, I sort of saw it as two people who were in two very different types of trances. Um, you know, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Why did I just call Travis Harry Dean Stanton? Oh, that's the actor's name. Harry Dean Stanton uh, was uh, was pulled out of his briefly. He could no longer, um, you know, walk in a in a straight line uh, on the sidewalk. And so, yeah, I think there's that, that brief moment uh, of empathy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I, I liked it. Sounded like Harry did, though. Uh, I think I'm on the same page as all of you guys, broadly. Um, I, uh, no, I, I just mean that, like, I, I don't want to go that deeply into it. But, yeah, right. I mean, like, I think it's suggesting that um, Travis can empathize with this person because his traumas and the tra- the way that the traumas have hurt and broken him, uh, to use Jenny's uh, apt phrase, um, are similar or or sort of they're, they're spiritually um, twinned to the the traumas and that have broken Travis, he's talking about a safety zone and how there is no safety zone in a, in America. Um, there's yeah, there's a suggestion there that that Travis is empathizing with this person because they're not so different. Um, th- this comes at a time when when Travis is having a dark night of the soul, literally, and and where he starts to sort of realize what he has to do. Um, yeah. Or he, he's he's um, realizing that he still has the same dark desires that he always did. This this comes not long after he decides he's going to go find Jane, which, um, like, <laughs> I think, uh, regardless of how you feel about this movie, I think the movie itself says is maybe not the best idea <laughs> to, like, like, leave this woman alone. Which, you know, that, that, like, the fact that it turns out to be a good idea, that he can undo those traumas, um, is like maybe one weakness. The one weakness of this movie, in my opinion, is that like I don't know that he has the right to essentially undo those traumas for Jane. Right um, to control the situation. I think, the, I think the characters of Walton and kind of are and their relationship and relationship to Hunter kind of help that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I get what you're saying. I think I, I don't know. I don't know if necessarily the film is overly. Like positive about his actions at the no, end of the movie. No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, it's it's. I don't think very that this, much up to interpretation. This movie is is very empathetic towards Travis, but it's not that sympathetic. I don't think sure. that this movie is telling you that Travis is a good person. Yeah, I don't want to open up the can of worms at two hours into our podcast, <laughs> but like the idea that he imagine imagine a story without Travis. The can like, is being slowly the pop can. I mean, this movie is two and a half hours, so I yeah, mean, there's a lot to say. Yeah, I had, I had <laughs> thought about that. Trend. Yeah, as long as we're beneath the runtime of the movie, we're yeah. good. This we is got like Akira. twenty minutes. I think. Uh, I think, um, as we said, a movie yeah. without Travis is a uh, uh, the the Natasha Kinsky show, which would be pretty cool. I mean, we, the, the one defense the, is that he did this, right? This yeah. is his mess. Yeah. And so well, there's some. Right, he's he's self-imposing his own punishment, and also self-imposing the the resolution to somebody else's pain. Which, but I think the movie itself, like, yes. that's a really good way to put it. Um, and 
I think that, that that the movie itself is saying that that resolving the pain in that way might not be ideal. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah. Right. I. It's just. It like imagining the story, from the beginning of the movie, not from the beginning of his uh, issues with with Jane, but from the beginning of the movie without Travis, presumably. Jane would have found her way back to Hunter. She has a direct line of communication if she felt like she was ready for that, if she felt like she wanted that, right? She she feels that she's not worthy of it, right? Right. Pretty and, pointedly. And it's it's basically Travis forcing himself into the, back into the situation. Uh, characteristically, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I, that, that's what I mean. It's, like it, it, it's a necessary part of the story. I don't know how I feel about that, that the story makes it necessary that yeah. Travis disrupts her. Because it is, it is necessary, and it's also bad, right? Like, the fact that he forces Hunter and Jane to have this re reconciliation, it's not necessarily a good thing. Right. I don't even necessarily think that the movie portrays it that way, mm -hmm. right? It's a destructive thing. It breaks up another family in the process. Sure. Good point. I kind of think that Travis doesn't give a shit about Hunter <laughs> throughout this whole movie. For in the middle, he just like I don't know has a realization that he should like pretend to be a good dad for a little while. But the second that Jane comes up again, he is totally fixated on her and healing mm -hmm. her. This is not about healing Hunter. Hunter would have been fine just living with Walt and Anne, yeah, you that's know, what I mean, yeah. and not being kidnapped. Maybe, yeah. Well, yeah, and then like he like he leaves Hunter out in the car in some alleyway behind the peep car. show. He leaves him in a hotel room for a long time. <laughs> they just crash in some like abandoned storefront. These are all not a place, not a place to, leave, to have the a fancy 80s were woman. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! You can end on that. Uh, okay, fine. Great points. Great points all around. Anybody? Yeah. I, well, and I think that 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 the fact that he doesn't give a shit about Hunter is because of his fixation, right? And mm -hmm. that's further mm -hmm. evidence of that fixation being. Uh, something that's still present. Well, yeah, him retelling the story um, in in the booth. He doesn't really bring up Hunter at all. So True. It's like he doesn't he doesn't give a shit about him. <laughs> that's my take. Wow. Brutal. I think I think I, I think I come to agree with that. Like, they spend a lot of time together. They have a lot of cute conversations. But ultimately, he he's self satisfied that he's re reunited, or not self satisfied, but he feels like he's done something. Good. I, guess. I think I, I disagree that. with that. Yeah, I think I do too. He's, he's he's weeping as he drives away after having left his son with Does his mother. Yeah, his, yeah. Oh, okay. The tears are like because people never weep when they're upset about something. They usually weep when they're Get experiencing guys self actualization. When do you cry? <laughs> I, uh, I'm a husk of a human being. When we cry. <laughs> This is what it sounds like when, when we I'm cry. alone listening to the monologue on my Paris Texas final. You're just happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing? I was joking. I don't want to talk cried. about when I cry. Um, <laughs> we should uh, we should wrap up, right? Yeah, uh, and we should have Jenny promote her stuff. Jenny, what stuff do you have to promote? Plugs. Um, God, I'm in school, and <laughs> that's what I'm promoting. <laughs> it takes all my time. Woo. Yeah. Um, I'm on good. Twitter. I don't tweet that often. If you just search Jenny Ackerson, I'm sure it will come up. <laughs> and Letterboxd. Oh, I'm on, uh, yeah, Letterboxd. on Letterboxd. I post sometimes. And Discogs. Is that the um, name of that website? Yeah, but I don't do much with it there. You used to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd prefer if your 60 fans on Twitter did not follow me on Discogs, yeah, actually. They're going to mess up my metrics. <laughs> then I guess we'll uh, ask Cody to... Well, we should all say goodbye. We should say our goodbyes. After. Yeah, right. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. This has been an episode about Paris, Texas. My name is Jason. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. My name's Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can just, just, just rewind it. You'll, you'll find it at the beginning. 
Wow. Uh, I'm Cody. Good yeah. Lord. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'll give it to you again. That's uh, at Cody, C-O-D-Y underscore B-H. Uh, Aaron Grossman's at is at A-A-R-B-Y underscore P-L-S. It's R-B, please. That's where you can find him. Two A's, P's. Please is spelled shorthand with an S. I'm here. You can find me on Shadagiri. And? I think I'm at... Ackerson, Jenny, I'm not sure. That's Jenny speaking. That's Jenny. Hi. Oh, Jenny Ackerson. We have been waiting such a long time to have you on this podcast, yeah. Jenny. We have been pining for it real hard. So thank you so much for joining oh, us. What? <laughs> You're just pining to have her on the podcast. Oh. I mean, I, I arguably have listened to more episodes than anyone else that has been on the show. Ben's of hard. Uh, that's correct. Really? I don't think that's true. Oh. Uh, I think Eric's listened to, like, all of them. Oh, really? I Eric. only listened to the hey, movies I've seen. So. Shout out to Eric. Come on the pod. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Jenny, everybody. Please be on the pod again. It's yeah. not going to happen, but we would love it if it did. <laughs> Maybe in 2020. Ha ha ha! We'll see you in 17 days or whatever. Yeah. Uh, thank you again for being on the pod, Jenny. Uh, even though, as you've clearly come to realize, this is not a place uh, to bring a fancy woman. Harry Dean Stanton, rest in peace. Oh.